Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 97, Quantum Leap, the novel by Ashley McConnell. Hey guys, welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. <laughs> we read a book. Aren't we clever? <laughs> I feel especially British tonight. <laughs> yeah, I feel classy read, yeah. talking about a book. Uh, British and classy go together, right? Like, yeah, so like absolutely. <laughs> like, so smart. Like, I read how many pages? <laughs> 280 odd pages of this. Ooh, look at us. It was 293 pages, 94 pages with the epilogue. Right. Matt, did you read the box tree edition or the ace edition? I read the ace edition. In this case, they're both identical. That's not always the case later on. In some cases, there are minor changes. But uh, no, the the only difference between the ace and the box tree edition is the uh, box tree one does not advertise Bill Shatner's novels at the back. <laughs> ah, yes. I mean, we do have some sweet, sweet tech war ads in the back of ours. <laughs> Ooh, yes. We will teach the children about tech war, the Quantum Leap novels will. <laughs> now, what I can do uh, with my box tradition is cut out the back page, uh, for it is also an order form where I can order the behind-the-scenes guide to the Avengers for twelve ninety nine, various prisoner novels, and the next two Quantum Leap novels as well for three ninety nine each. Oh, yeah, wow. better get on that before they're all scooped up. <laughs> I know. It's um, 50p postage, though. And uh, I can send a postal order if I wish. That's one for the old timers in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. My Curse Claremont and Tech War uh, pages are also order forms. However, they're on the same page, so they would have yes. to turn it around at the uh, at the clearinghouse to make sure that you weren't ordering two. But d- did people really just damage books back in the nineties in order to See, place orders for them? That's it is funny. Now that we're we're on the set. Hey, everyone, this is Chris. <laughs> this is Allison. Uh, this is Matt. 
And welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. If you couldn't tell, today we kick off the Quantum Leap Book Club with our review of the first book of the Quantum Leap novel series, Quantum Leap. The novel also releases Carney Knowledge in the UK. Uh, the book is by Ashley McConnell. And of course, the first thing that we zoned in on was the fact that A, yes, we read a book, and B, <laughs> that there are these neat order forms in the back. Now, this is really a relic because- Matt- We are clearly so unfamiliar <laughs> with books that we're talking about. They're, they're bits of paper bound together between slightly thicker bits of paper. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a while, guys. It's like it was a tree and now, and now a story. Why isn't this round and rolled up? I'm so confused. <laughs> for kids that are always on the Twitter, <laughs> paper was a thing we used to use. <laughs> We're reading books not on our Kindles. You're so analog, Boomer. Sorry, Chris. Don't even. You're talking about these order forms, and they are fun to look at, but I recall when I first got into Star Trek books, I mean, that was sort of the the template for the Quantum Leap novel series, um, the Star Trek book series, and... I remember seeing an ad in the back of one of those for a technical manual called Chekhov's Enterprise, and I guess it was basically how you were supposed to navigate a Constitution-class starship. And I remember saying, I really want this book, and I think on on the order form, it's like, you know, 250 or 350. That's how long ago this was. And I said, but I don't want to rip a page out of one of my books. I don't know about you guys, but like, I'm a lifelong reader. I love books. I have a library. My books are almost pristine. I don't crack the binding when I read them. I make sure that the dust jackets stay pristine and I'm really anal about them. So when I took out my Quantum Leap novel series to reread the books, they all look brand new. I mean, they're in like mint condition and I love it that way. I couldn't imagine ripping out a piece of paper out of a book. It's like almost like sacrilege to me. Am I the only book geek in the room? Oh, Chris, I'm so sorry. When I started rereading this book, I didn't have the bookmark handy. So um, whenever I had to stop for the night, I was folding down the corners of the pages. No! <laughs> I'm so sorry. A page folder? What kind of animal? <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, I don't even know you anymore. We have to end this podcast. I'm terrible. <laughs> no one's allowed to do that to my book. And I'll never do that to foreknowledge. Well, not that you'll know. Yeah. It's funny. Allison and I were having this discussion offline when she was showing me her copy and I had noticed how, how worn it looked. And Allison, what did you say? It was well loved. I love that expression. That book is well loved. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, it, to be fair, um, it was like that when I bought it because I bought a lot of just. Um, so you didn't love it. Th- that had just a bunch of the books <laughs> together. It was well loved by someone and then uh, loved by me. I've read it twice now because I have read through all the Quantum Leap novels. I ripped through them just all at one period of time a while back. Uh, so it's nice revisiting these. I used to be like a, a big reader as a kid, but. Now um, I'm like, that seems like a lot of commitment. That's yeah. a lot of words. <laughs> Same. I, yeah, I was such a reader as a kid, and I'm I'm bringing Zach up to be a reader as well. I I want him to 
do better than I did. But yeah, now I'm just like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> or I could just sit in front of a film and half concentrate on it while I browse Facebook. That seems much easier. But we are doing a lot of reading um, on all the social media that we all take in or articles that you read online. They're just not in paper form. Uh, you might be right, reading a lot of stupid writing if you're just <laughs> reading the social media, but you are doing some reading. So, I mean, I guess. I mean, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge, you know, like I said, fiction person and you know having novels has been just part of who i am since i can remember um i just fell in love with reading when i was young and i never stopped it wasn't even a hobby it was it was just a part of life so to be able to revisit this i haven't read this novel since it first came out i don't know how many years ago now probably almost 30 years ago now so it was fun revisiting it and um Speaking of revisiting, um, because this is the inaugural episode of the QLP Book Club, and uh, we are going to be talking about the QLP novels at length over the next several shows, I got an interview with Quantum Leap novel series editor Ginger Buchanan. She was the editor in charge of the novel series at Berkeley Publishing. Uh, Ace, Berkeley, I think they're Penguin Putnam. Eventually, the novels became Boulevard, but Ginger was behind it all. How'd you get that connection? <laughs> I, I kind of <laughs> knew her from way back when, <laughs> when I dazzled her with my smile and my talent and my writing, and I sold a little book called Foreknowledge. So yeah, I've known Ginger for quite a long time, and um, it was great reconnecting with her. And she uh, got on Mike very willingly to tell us all about the inception of the novel program and how they got the rights and, you know, what they could do, what they couldn't do. And um, it was a very interesting discussion. I knew some of it, but I didn't know all of it. So everybody stay tuned for that because um, it's really cool to see, you know, this didn't just come out of nothing. There was a lot of work that went into um, figuring out how these novels were going to come to the public. And um, as a result of her hard work and success, we're here now talking about them. So stay tuned for that after the break, we will be talking to Ginger Buchanan. And Allison, your last comment sort of gets me into what I wanted to do. I know we usually do initial impressions, but since this is the first of the novel shows, before initial impressions of the novel, I'd like to know how you discovered that there were Quantum Leap novels, because to this day, when people see that, you know, we post something about a novel on, say, like the Facebook page or or whatever, people are like, oh my god, there are novels? I had no idea there were novels. So I don't even know that it's general knowledge that there is a Quantum mm. Leap novel series. How did you come across it? Man, I got no story there. <laughs> I genuinely, I don't remember. I mean, uh, I was big into Quantum Leap fan fiction. It probably sprouted from there. And I just wanted to read more of it and bought a bunch of them online. So I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a story for how I discovered them. I just really enjoyed them. Well, I, I mean, it, to varying degrees. It's like any episodes of the show. You like some, you don't really like some other ones. But uh, what I really liked about them is that in the novels, it, it really opens up uh, opportunities that you don't get on the show. You have like a lot more time to explore things at the project or the ins and outs of things, uh, tell stories that wouldn't be on the show and maybe you wouldn't even want to see on the show you're just like <laughs> i just want to see kind of a what if this is kind of cool but um maybe not in in filmed form so i i like that they're kind of experimental in some ways that's cool how about you matt how did you discover the novel series 
I don't remember discovering them as such. So I used to spend, shockingly, a lot of time in comic book stores in the early 90s, and I just remember them being there. I remember The Wall coming out, uh, and I bought that when it came out, and I hadn't bought any of the ones previous to that, and I didn't buy any more after that. Uh, until I came to research for Beyond the Mirror Image, and then I, I bought and read the whole lot. Did the wall turn you off of it, or you just didn't pursue it any further? No, I quite liked it. I just uh, I was reading all kinds of different stuff when I was a teenager, and I wasn't that much into Quantum Leap. It was just, uh, um, it was like, okay, this looks kind of cool. I'll give it a go. And um, yeah, we'll come on to my feelings on the wall uh, in a few episodes' time. But it's it wasn't a bad story just wasn't enough to hook me in and make me want to read all of them. Which is good, because uh, obviously they, they got harder to get hold of in the UK partway through the run. Huh. Well, it was much more momentous for me, I guess. Maybe that's why I wanted to ask you guys, because for me, this was like like a turning point in my life. I was in Missouri at school. Like most of my Quantum Leap stories, it begins in Missouri. And um, I was um, at a mall. I, you know, used to go to the bookstore every couple of weeks when I had some spare money, finally. And I would just go and browse in the science fiction section. And I saw Quantum Leap, the novel. They had it like front facing. It must have just been released. And I just stopped in my tracks and I said, no <laughs> way. And <laughs> you got to realize at this point, I literally maybe about a month before this novel came out had just finished writing Paradox. <laughs> so when I saw this, it was a foregone conclusion in my head. Quantum Leap novel series. I am going to be a Quantum Leap author. End of story. Oh. Done. Finished. That's it. Oh, man. Yeah, so it was really like, story. like a heart-stopping moment. What an origin moment. story. <laughs> yeah. So I do have definite impressions about Quantum Leap, the novel, but I want to get your initial impressions first. And if I can, and maybe maybe it's the same, but since this is the second time that all of us have read it, when you first read it, how did you like it? And um, has that changed on the subsequent reading? Uh, Allison. Uh, I think it's fine. I think it's a solid uh, starter book. Like, I wouldn't want uh, anything too crazy for the first uh, novel that they published. I think, like, it would be kind of like a, an average episode of Quantum Leap, I'd say. Uh, I don't think my opinions really changed. I think I thought that when I first read it, because I, I knew vaguely what the other plots would be, and I was like, eh, this is fine. Okay. How about you, Matt? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this was worse I, than the wall and i hated the wall it's not bad right so <laughs> i've got to get that this is gonna i'm gonna get this off my chest at some point it might as well be now putting quantum leap in print form is a crazy idea to start with because <laughs> on screen people are talking to scott Bakula all the time using the name of the Leapy, but looking him in the eyes. So you've got a nice clue. This is what's going on. It's goddamn confusing when you're reading a book and people are talking to him and using the Leapy's name, but you've got no kind of visual clue. It's stupid doing Quantum Leap books. <laughs> <laughs> because, because it's so hard to keep track of who's who and now, who's talking Matt, to who. <laughs> out of the three people in this call, two of us have published a Quantum Leap or Quantum Leap adjacent <laughs> book. <laughs> 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 All right, Quantum Leap Fiction, then. 
Let me just. As, oh, okay. <laughs> so just Chris's book is the dumb. Yeah. <laughs> so Matt, let me let me teach you a little trick when you're reading, like. Read the words, but then use the words yeah. to form uh, like an image in your mind's eye of what's going on so it could look like an episode in your head. And that guy that they call Bob actually looks like Sam. I know, but it just – don't you find that it adds – and look, all right, I, I love a lot of the later Quantum Leap novels. I, I have some issues with this one. No major issues. So I'm not slating the range as a whole. I'm just – I just feel like if if it were my choice, this range would never have existed. And I'm glad it wasn't my choice because there's some really good books. I'm fully prepared <laughs> to admit I was wrong about that. But I started reading this again and thought again, how did this ever get commissioned? It's just like <laughs> – this shouldn't work. And then you've got Al coming in and talking to Sam. And again, all this stuff that works visually but does not work on paper um, without a lot of explanations and exposition and concentration on the part of the reader. And yes, I've got to that age where I'm terrible <laughs> at concentrating in books. I'm sorry. Even quantum leap books. But that that aside, because I, I know... I, I've read the rest of the range and it and it's fine. I, I get used to it. It's just a... It's a it's a crazy idea to put in print. But um, as a book, that was what you were asking me, wasn't it? What was my first impressions of this story? It, it, Yeah, it kind of feels like an average season one or first half of season two sort of episode, even though this was written, like, what, season four-ish, I think, this was published? Or se- season five. It was later in the show that I thought it would be. Yeah, well, in-universe, this has to take place in season four or after. Yes, but from the point of view of Ashley McConnell and the tone that she set, apart from all the random stuff in QLP, which makes it feel like season five, the actual plot just feels very archaic by the standards that Quantum Leap was at by that point. It it's okay. It's okay. I don't um I don't find it bad. It's just a little clunky in places. Gotcha. And I mean, you guys have been really diplomatic. I will say right out when I read this novel I was so excited and I freaking hated it when I first read it <laughs> but you have to put that in context I was 19 years old I had just written Paradox like I said so I was on a creative high and uh, specifically a creative quantum leap high and I felt that my quantum leap credibility was like unassailable and mm-hmm. this book just did not fit in with my vision of the characters, my interpretation of the mm-hmm. series, or just anything that made Quantum Leap, Quantum Leap to me. I felt the book wholly failed to capture it the way I saw it. To the point where, because, as I said, foregone conclusion, that's it. I'm going to be a Quantum Leap author. They have a book series. I'm in. I was um, writing a letter to the publisher, this is before I knew who Ginger was, before I knew anything about anything, because I was a big dumb idiot. But I said um, something to the effect of, if you publish this piece of crap, then <laughs> wait till you read my story, because my story is actually good. And Did you really love- say that? I Well, to let's put it this way. I had a letter drafted to that, you know, not that crude, but I was having um, somebody read it you know, just to, to prove it because I was, like I said, I was a big dumb idiot and I was but obnoxious. You, you were 19, right? I was 19, yeah. Name a 19 year old who isn't obnoxious and self assured. Oh, yeah, we all you know, at 19. Yeah, they, we all yeah. own the world at 19 <laughs> and fuck everybody else. But uh, they told me, do not send this. You're shooting yourself in the foot. They'll never publish you. And I said, what, what do you mean? But they, they don't get it. I get it. And <laughs> they pointed out the obvious. 
Time and money went into them producing this book. They commissioned someone to write it. They liked it enough to print it, and therefore they're probably pretty proud of it. So, yeah. step back, moron. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they liked Ashley McConnell too, right? Like she wrote more than any of mm-hmm. the other ones, I think. So, yeah, and let me put this in context. Understand, that was me then as an obnoxious kid. Mm-hmm. And now I read the book, rereading it was actually so refreshing. I'm so glad I reread it because, yeah, it's got its problems, but it is nowhere near the horror show that I thought it was when I first read it because I'm not an asshole anymore. Anyway, not that kind of asshole. <laughs> so I, I think I have a much more measured view of the book. I still think it's got some significant problems, but it's not really the crime against nature that I originally decried and was wailing and gnashing and, you know, ripping my hair out about. So that's the wall. You know what I will say for this? Uh, I want to give uh, Ashley McConnell credit, and I don't know if uh, Ginger or anyone else uh, was involved in, in any of this type stuff, but this does establish a lot of things for the other novels and a lot of mm-hmm. background that became part of Quantum Leap canon, at least in the heads of people that write fan fiction or people that are like super fans that read all of the novels. Like, it's like, well, yeah, this is canon to me. Of course, there's this blue void in between the leaps where Sam talks to people. Like, that never happened on the show. That's just something from the books. Yeah. She builds that universe out. She does so well, and she did it to an extent where, like you said, Allison, it just became the de rigueur framework for most of the novels that came after. There were a couple of things that um, she couldn't know, um, and we'll get into that, that kind of contradict the series a little bit. But um, on the whole, this is a, a really good scaffolding for everything that came later, and I was really surprised at how much I think I remember putting in my book that I didn't realize was right in this first book. And it just became sort of the shorthand for the novel series. So, Well, it's a lot of it that makes sense to me. Like, she adds stuff that it's like, yeah, you could kind of surmise that's what's going on. It's like that. I think that makes sense to me. And I'm really glad that it wasn't an overly complicated, uh, grandiose, experimental story, any of those kinds of things. I think it needed to be just something solid to start things out. Just the tone of the fact that there is... Yes, there's the leap going on, but there is a significant chunk of the story set to what's going on at the project, which we we see a little bit in season five in episodes like Dr. Ruth. But that is the standard for the novels, right? They yeah. all have an ongoing plot line showing what's what's going on at, at the, uh, or most of them showing what's going on at the project. And I love that. I love that we get stuff at the, the project. Yeah, and Verbena even gets to speak. <laughs> most of the books. <laughs> to varying degrees. I do. She does seem yeah. to kind of change characterization depending on who's writing her, but... <laughs> Tina gets a surname and a degree and an IQ. It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Can we talk about... Give uh, Ashley McConnell credit for the, the Tina characterization. I just want to yeah. say she made her a genius in this, yeah. and it's uh, fantastic. But it's fun how she does that plausibly. Like, she still keeps all the, like... She's still a valley girl. She's just a genius valley girl. <laughs> She does it marvelously. She doesn't overwrite anything we already know about her. Yeah, and that's, again, something that um, even up to the last name, that wonky hyphenated last name of Martinez O'Farrell, um, mm. you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I think it was probably, no, I can't, I'm not even going to say which book explores her more because it's actually a little bit of a spoiler. But uh, that's going to be a long way away, and you guys are not going to yes. remember I said that. So, 
Um, why don't we start where we are now with the novel, also known as Carney Knowledge. I'm going to read the blurb that's in the front. I know that we did this at the end of the last show, but it cannot hurt to uh, just refresh everybody on the basic plot. Trapped in the body of a 1950s carnival worker, Sam Beckett learns the true meaning of thrills and chills. According to Al, <laughs> Sam's holographic contact with the future. A roller coaster will derail in four days. The accidents will result in seven deaths, and Sam's chances of stopping it are one in a million. Dun, dun, dun! Quantum Leap, the novel. <sighs> So, like you guys, this struck me as almost something that you would have seen somewhere between How the Test Was Won and Blind Faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though it took place canonically, it had to take place sometime in season four. It was very much of an original feeling kind of leap when the show was still finding its footing. I guess the novels are sort of finding their footing as well. Maybe there's a correlation there. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what you said, Allison, and I I discussed this with Ginger in the sense that, and you'll hear this later in the interview, but there was a whole question as to whether or not you were going to try to stay solidly within the universe as it was established, or if you were going to try to branch out and maybe exploit opportunities contained in that universe that you couldn't do on the show or that weren't done on the show. And she had a definite answer about that. And if you read this book, you can probably tell what it is, but no spoilers for the interview. Um, Sam Sleepy in this, his name is Bob Watkins, and he's the carnival worker. This is the biggest departure from show canon. <laughs> it is evident from page one that this is a mind leap. You, you sure about that, Chris? You sure that's a departure from show canon? <laughs> I'm willing oh, to admit. he admits it. I'm willing he to admit. He admits it. Everyone, Chris said it. <laughs> I'm just sick of arguing with Allison. Okay. <laughs> well, they even, they make a, um, there was some sort of note in a later book about that. Um, I thought for a while that the books were published earlier than they were, even though um, they do reference things from uh, Shock Theater, which means this has to be season four. But um, I, I thought it was published earlier because they'd already well established by now on the show, like that it was Sam's body, like they'd stated it, like the show had never really come off like most of the books where it is uh, mind leaps, even though I think some of them do go with the body leap, but I think a majority of them go with the mind version. I thought it was only the Ashley McConnell books that took it as a mind leap, but it has been a while since I read them. So um, The the one where... Uh, never mind, I'm going to spoil stuff, but there are ones later where it's, it's definitely mind leaps. Yeah, and I think that um, when Ashley was writing, it was still unclear on the show whether it was mind or body, and we it did not have- It was not unclear. It well, wasn't unclear. We had blind three. faith for a start. I'm going, said it. I'm going by conversations I had at the time with Ginger way, way back in the 90s, okay? She's saying that at the time that they commissioned this book and Ashley was writing, um, Nowhere to Run had um, yet to be aired which definitively established that it's a body leap because Sam is walking with no legs. and yeah, um, Except for the one where they state it <laughs> definitively. Blind faith. He's not walking around bumping into things. <laughs> there are definitive answers, uh, but I could see how people would be confused now and back then. Yes. But especially back then, because like you just have like tapes to go by. It's not like people yeah, are like, yeah, yeah. binging yeah. the series. Yeah, and that's so, the other like, thing I you guys that. yeah. Um you have to remember that a lot of this was done 
primarily on memory and um, maybe reaching out to fan communities that had this stuff on tape. And you couldn't just like go and rewatch the entire series or the entire first season to get the answers for this. You just sort of had to go with what you remembered. And as long as it didn't like really contradict what was on screen in broad strokes, then it was good enough. And mm-hmm. I can see somebody at this point pre-DVD, maybe some people had a VHS cassettes, but what were the odds of finding them and then getting them mailed and blah, blah, blah? I mean, you got a deadline. Yeah. And they'd only released a select number of episodes when they did the tapes as well. Exactly. So, I mean, Shock Theater was one of them. And mm. The Leap Home was another because I had both of them. Um, so she might have just had Shock Theater to go on. Maybe that's why Shock Theater plays such a big part in this book because it was one of the tangible things that she could get her hands on to ground this in the series more for the fans than just for the casual reader. But um, yeah, I thought it was really interesting that when Sam looks down when he leaps in that um, he sees Bob's withered arm because in the book, Bob had suffered polio when he was a child. So the right side of his body was weaker as a result. I guess maybe he had suffered some muscle atrophy as a child that affected him for the rest of his life. I thought that it was neat because when he looks down, he sees dusky skin from a suntanned arm and uh, a hand that looks slightly shriveled. And that is not something that I think I ever considered when I was thinking about Quantum Leap. What does Sam see when he looks? Does he see his his own hand? You just assume that he sees himself because we see him. Well, I mean, he sees himself because there are times where he would have noticed he was pregnant or he didn't have legs or any of those other things. Like, I think like he, or if he was a child, like, I think he would have noticed before he sees his mirror image. And that's why he's always looking for his mirror image because he can't see anything but himself. Yeah, and if you recall in Nowhere to Run, Al is right there when he leaps in, Sam, don't get up, don't get up. And then he points to the mirror in the ceiling and Sam looks up and sees that he's a double amputee. So I guess the assumption is that he would see his own legs. Mm. It was just – it was a wrinkle that I had never really considered. I think they touched upon it in What Price Gloria when he was Samantha for the first time, especially Al's reaction to his appearance. But – Again, at that point, I hadn't seen What Price Gloria. I hadn't started watching the show until eight and a half months. In What Price Gloria, he does uh, try to check his chest out, though. Like, he starts looking down. He's looking in the mirror, and he starts looking down, so that it's like, does he? <laughs> Would he see boobs there? <laughs> <laughs> maybe he sees in the mirror, is looking, looking to see if he sees them when he looks down. Yeah, maybe you know? he's like, oh, do I have boobs? <laughs> <laughs> Who else sees seems to change after What Price Gloria. But right. yeah, I mean, it, in the series, we don't get much definitive on what Sam sees, but Al, it's quite clearly spelt out. It's just, it changes. But they change it in the in this book, too. In this book, he seems to see Sam as Bob, and then uh, in the, the waiting room, he sees uh, Sam's body. I think in one of the books, doesn't it say you can kind of see both at once? Yeah, I think they try to kind of fudge around. I do like this stuff with Al. They do get into, and I'm not sure if it's in this book or not, but they get into like the reasons why he remembers certain things. I think they do speak about it in this book, right? They do. They speak about it a little bit. That he remembers different timelines. Yeah, and that's and there's there's another thing that Ashley introduces in the course of this narrative that became somewhat of a staple of the book series in the sense that there's slightly shifting reality 
back at the project, mm-hmm. there's a scene where Al goes into Sam's office, which has been locked up for a year or so to go find some plans or something. He ruminates that the last time he had been in there, things were different. There was like a notation on Sam's blotter that was just like a calculation where he's balancing his checkbook. And then um, when Al looks at it again after the years passed, it's something completely different written on the blotter. And he reflects that there are small changes to their own reality based on what Sam is doing. Just little offshoots of, of I guess, causality that change ever so slightly what's going on back at the project. And some authors played with that a little bit more than others. I played with it a little bit myself in my book because, hey, if it's there and somebody can establish it, then why not use it? It can be a cool tool. Right. I do I do remember when they they brought this up in the book, when Ashley brought it up. It's like um Al remembers all the timelines because of his connection to Ziggy. Like it's unique to him, mm. so other people don't. And specifically he says that it's very lonely. And yes. that really stuck with me that like mm. Al is someone like one of the only people that knows any of this stuff. Right. And it's funny to me that we're we're getting into the back to the project stuff like right away. <laughs> It's because the leap is not that interesting. Yeah, the the leap could be interesting, but like I said, it, it it's basically like a season one, season two feeling kind of mm-hmm. story. It is almost the epitome of early 90s, late 80s TV sensibility hmm. in the sense that the guest cast is not that well fleshed out. It's not really that interesting. And nor had they established much of a rapport with Sam and Al. Sam didn't have much of a history in the first few episodes. His relationship with Al was still a little bit sketchy in a couple of the episodes. And I feel like this one really captured that feeling. And that's one of the downfalls of the book. I'll get into that. But just if we can give everybody, if they haven't read the book or if they hadn't had a chance to read the book, Sam as the carnival worker is in 1957 Oklahoma at an amusement park called Shaber's Family World. And um, he is sort of like the resident crazy. He talks to himself. (laughs) um, He has, quote, visions. Some people think he's nuts. Some people think he's psychic. Yeah, the psychic thing was weird. That was a really weird element. That, to me, again, is fair game for Quantum Leap. They do have, you know, ghosts and ESP and Portrait for Troyan. So why not have it here in this book? Yeah, well, in The Boogeyman, Sam says that he believes in all this kind of stuff, like ESP and psychic phenomena and all that. It just felt like a weird element in this one, because it did kind of add to like, well, is he crazy or is he? Mm-hmm. does he actually see things? And that's why people are like, well, maybe he he's just seeing things again. Um, it just, I don't know. I, I remember it feeling weird when I first read this. Like, I was like, what? Like, is the character psychic now? Like... He's seeing visions, and I'm not sure if it really came together all that well with that element of it, but... Mm, They did have one specific scene. So, Sam is um, basically like an uh, odd jobsman around the park. And in one scene, he's called on to fix a cotton candy machine. Now, I've run cotton candy machines. This is a different cotton candy machine than I've ever run. This one has syrup in it. Usually, you just put sugar in the middle. The sugar heats up and the cotton candy spins out of the center. But maybe this is a 1950s cotton candy machine that uses some weird kind of syrup. While he's leaning down to 
inspect the machine, he sees his reflection in the glass of the machine. And all of a sudden, the reflection turns to him covered in cotton candy with some cuts on his face or something like that. And then right after that, the machine goes bluey and everything explodes out. And, you know, he raises his arm to cover his eyes and he's covered in like cotton candy goo and, um, you know, got some abrasions from the thing blowing up. So that was the one scene where they say, yeah, this guy is psychic. And Sam is sort of psycho-synergizing with that aspect of him because he just had a psychic flash. This was psycho-synergizing before we even had the term on the show. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was an interesting wrinkle. And again, we keep getting sidetracked from the main plot. The proprietor of the park is named Aileen Shaber. She has uh, staked everything on this roller coaster called the Killer Diller. And um, <laughs> you guys know what the Killer Diller is, right? What? Is it a thing? I just thought it was that, a yes. dumb name for a killer roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> that is a term from jazz. That's a swing term. Benny Goodman said um, that at the end of the night when they were doing their encore, they would try to end with what they called the killer diller. And if you guys have heard um, the the version, it's really popular. I'll drop a little bit in right here of Sing 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 with a Swing. You know the song even if you don't know the song. It's like an amazing piece of music. It gets featured in a lot of things. It was nice to see that they called the roller coaster the killer diller because it reminded me of Sing 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 with a swing. Was that a 40s thing? Like, I feel like diller was a 40s phrase. Killer diller. <laughs> well, I think killer diller was probably just a rhyme. I don't think diller is a specific thing. I think they just said the killer yeah, diller. Killer you diller, know? yeah. Because it was just uh, hip. Daddy-o. So, <laughs> but uh, against... Um, all odds, he's got to stop this ride from opening because somehow there's an accident where eight people are going to die. And he, as someone who is maybe an outsider in that community, is already going to have a hard enough time convincing people to take him seriously. Well, if he doesn't stop it, like he also risks uh, Bob going to an institution, which is another wrinkle in the whole thing. He's supposed to stop it without getting Bob committed. So that's why it's uh, not very easy. Right. And um, it doesn't help that the guy McFarland, who designed and built the roller coaster, is mocking him at every turn and being just a general dick. There's a guy named Jesse, who is one of the carnival workers who's disgruntled because he thinks that the roller coaster is too expensive and it's going to break the park and the park is going to have to close down. Turns out the park is on his ancestral family land that um, his uh, his family owned, I guess, for 20 years before they stole it from the Indians. And um, Of course. <laughs> but he's sort of disgruntled because he sees it as his legacy and he thinks that she's running it to the ground. And of course, there's the requisite four-year-old girl that's always chewing on her fingers that can see Sam and Al and is way too freaking smart to be any kind of four-year-old you ever met. So. <laughs> an angel. Did um, I, I? I'm concerned that this is going to be one of those things where I ask a question and you guys are like, "Did you just miss a whole bit? Was there any point to her and the fact that she could see Sam and Al? None that I could discern. No, she's just there to be precocious. Usually, there is some <laughs> kind of like I was waiting at some point for like while Sam was locked up, Al was going to go to her and say, "Quick, go and tell everyone to get off the ride." Or something. No, 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 no. They just 
They did not. It, it, she was just like the, the Chekhov's gun that stayed in its holster. <laughs> she was there to play with Cat and be cute. Uh, I did like some of her interactions with Al, though, because I do think Al yeah. and kids make for uh, good scenes. And she's like, oh, I like him. Yeah, I like him, too. <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, And she says that Al looks like a clown in his outfit. That was kind of funny. Better than Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a white man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why either. I think that maybe that they were putting that in to introduce this wrinkle of the universe that maybe general readers or um, casual fans might not have remembered yeah. or known about, so that you could establish that broader world maybe for later books. It's a nice enough facet. It's just we're so used to when that comes up, it actually being a relevant plot point. It's It seems unlike Quantum Leap for it just to be there just for the sake of being there. It's not a bad thing. Just very different. Well, I also think that um, I hate to get into um, story weaknesses right away, but the Bessa plotline kind of points out, I think, what is one of the main failings of this book is that it had a lot of useless plot. There is a lot of pointless dialogue, a lot of um, scenes that go in circles mm -hmm. that don't really bring the story any further. And all the stuff with Bessa just seemed like, okay, well, I have this treatment for, say, a Quantum Leap script, but I have to fill this out to a novel that's a certain word length. <laughs> it's building the world. Building the world around him. <laughs> Who are these fun characters? You don't want them all to be the killers. Potential killers. <laughs> I was going to ask Matt about that too, but usually yeah. <laughs> when, when, when you're building a world, you sprinkle in characters that somehow drive the narrative forward. And it seemed to me that a great deal of this book did nothing to drive the narrative forward. Like they, they set up Sam's mission and then it spun its wheels for a great deal of time. Yeah, people had meetings, and then Sam was like, I'm depressed and scared. What do I do? I've tried nothing, and I'm all out of ideas. <laughs> but I wanted to know, Matt, because you were especially honing in on this when it's the series. You're like, golly, <laughs> who, who, done it who could the killer be? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, in this one, I genuinely felt that we had a couple of viable candidates, and there were some really <laughs> okay red herrings, maybe. <laughs> who it ended up being was ridiculous. But that—that's the thing. Yeah, when when you find out who it is, it's like, huh? Okay. Uh. <laughs> I mean, we can spoil. I mean, we got to assume that everybody's read the book. And guys, if you haven't read the book, I mean, stop it right here and read the book because it turns out that um, you'd think that it's Jesse the whole time. And I thought that it was Jesse the whole time. And Yeah, he writes all these yeah. silly notes on the blueprints like, yeah. impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Not having read the book in 30 years, I completely forgot who the bad guy was at the end. So the reveal was kind of neat. I, I enjoyed that part of the book. <laughs> And I think that Ashley set up Jesse convincingly as like a red herring, as a sort of a bait and switch, because surprise, surprise, yeah. it turns out to be McFarland who built the roller coaster, who apparently has a blood fetish and thinks that people don't understand the machines that are around them and therefore they deserve to die. Question yeah. mark. He just likes yeah. killing things and people. <laughs> He's just yeah. a killer guy. He's a killer dealer. <laughs> they, um, they keep uh, 
cutting to, for lack of a better word, cutting to, the, there's these sections of the book that are just the killer's POV. So you don't know who it is. You just It's just these kind of mad thoughts and random uh, memories and things like that. And it's McFarland. And uh, there was this line in there that was ridiculous. This is like oh, the most ridiculous sentence in this whole thing. So I wrote it down. <laughs> Blood, he thought, was the lubricant of ignorance. <laughs> Blood is the lubricant of ignorance. Soon to be available on a t-shirt from quantumleappodcast.com. <laughs> Get on that Scott dumb Madison. line. <laughs> well, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's funny made because me laugh. there are a couple of things that I wrote down. I mean, just as silly as this story could get and just as like, I don't know, that was just way out there. The blood is the lubricant of, of ignorance. There were some <laughs> strengths and I feel like it's so easy to come in and talk about the stuff in the book that doesn't work. And it's a lot more fun to do that too. I mean, let's just be serious, but I want to give the story credit where I think I saw some credit due. And then I'll get into trashing some of the stuff that I think didn't work. But I could see the leap in, in my mind's eye, like I would have on TV. You can just see Sam coming in. You see a point of view shot of just him staring down the barrel of a rifle, trying to protect the person he's with, dragging them down, then knocking down that carnival tent. You could just see the old boy. It's it's not particularly exciting or effective, but I could see it playing out on screen. So I kind of like what yeah. she did with that. I well, really it's a fun leaping. Yeah, and you know, it's a fine leaping. It's just fine. That's to me something they would have done on TV had they thought of it. Yeah, no, I thought it was fun. I like the idea that he's like in this totally non-dangerous situation at a carnival, and then he's thinking like, "Well, there's a gun. I got to protect this person." Right, and then everybody's pissed off at him, and he somehow wrecked an entire carnival tent just by falling down, but okay. I mean, I I, I get that, but... (laughs) He fell into it, and then he spun around, he's like, ah, he didn't know what to do, and then things were flying everywhere. It's crazy. He broke his little ducks, right? (laughs) And after, you know, they sort of clean the tent up, instead of looking for a mirror, the first thing he does is go to like an old-timey photo booth and gets a sepia print of the Leapy. And that's how he sees who he, he is. That seems like expensive and a long time to print that out. 50s. No, I think that they had brownies back then. You could do a Kodak back then. I'm okay. not really sure. I'm not really sure if that tracks. We'll have to see if there are any camera experts out there mm. listening. Let us know if that's an anachronism in this book. You know the radios, but you don't know the cameras. No, sorry. Yeah, I can only have one mania. I apologize. I don't think there were any radios featured in this novel, so can't help you with with the camera stuff but i thought that regardless of whether or not that tracks for the time it was an interesting way to go about uh it instead of just a standard mirror shot and um the one thing that i really thought worked very well in this book was sam's ptsd over shock theater yeah i was kind of surprised how much shock theater came up in this mm. but i i guess that's one of the things i appreciated about the novels and about this one is that they're able to bring up this stuff, just Sam's thoughts that wouldn't necessarily be brought up on screen. Like you can surmise in some episodes, maybe Sam's thinking about shock theater or some other thing, but he's not necessarily going to be like, this is just like that time in blee, 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 blee. <laughs> right, right. I feel like there were some times where it was like, he like he's vomiting in a toilet because he's just so traumatized by this yeah. whole thing. Maybe it's like really fresh after it, but it feels like it's like 
he's really traumatized about this. Yeah. And um, I, I really, you know, think that that was where the tension in the novel worked because it was where you felt Sam personally and his fear of Bob being committed and by extension him being committed because if he doesn't succeed in stopping the accident, he doesn't leap and therefore he shares Bob's fate. And just the thought of going back to that environment. What I loved about that part of it is that it didn't stop, like you said, Allison, like they might have in the series, like when before they had the saga cell, they would have Sam doing a little litany of what it was like to be leaping. You know, well, I was in a really hot spot in the electric chair, but woo boy, good thing I yeah. leaped from the frying pan into the fire. And then he's like in Disco Inferno or something. And she didn't do any of that. All you see are just these snippets of flashback that you know as a fan or shock theater. But they never have Al say, oh, Sam is going back. Do you remember that time when he was in the asylum and we were losing contact with him? And they never did like a little synopsis of what shock theater was. They just left it there. And if you knew what it was, then it enriched the story. If you didn't know what it was, maybe go out and find the one videotape that exists of Quantum Leap that's on the market at this time and see what it's about. And I hate to, you know, maybe maybe I did stumble upon something. That shock theater was one of the few that was available on video at the time. Maybe that's why it played so heavily in this story, because it was one that she could get her hands on and directly reference in, in a bigger way. Maybe. Well, I mean, I also think that episode is very popular because um, it's such a story central to Sam, and not just the the person that he's leaped into. It's a very traumatic story, so I feel like that's something a lot of people just come back to because it is it was such a big deal. Can I just jump in and correct you? Sorry, Shock Theater came out on video April ninety four. This was published November ninety three. Oh well, look at that. Mm. So there goes my well, theory. It would have made sense. I, I thought it was a sensible theory, but hey, listen, just because a theory makes sense doesn't mean it's not bullshit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it I think it really was just the story was like a lot of people liked it and it meant something yeah. more to Sam. It's not like they're going to be like, remember that time when I leapt into a wrestler? This reminds me of that. Like there's a lot of parallels to things that happened in shock theater there where things go horribly wrong for Sam. Not just that was a close call. So I, I don't know. Also, a lot of in this story, too, he, he just seems very depressed. He seems very depressed because he's depressed over that and he's depressed over uh, his memory too. There's a lot of stuff about holes in his memory that is brought up more than would be brought up in dialogue in any given episode. So I found that kind of interesting. Hmm. I, I kind of like that aspect of it a lot and maybe because it spoke to me personally in, in a small way. But there's there's a line somewhere along the lines. I think this is a quote because I wrote it down in my notes. But – um, where Sam expresses his greatest fear, and um, the greatest fear he could know was the loss of his ability to think. For me, that is my greatest fear. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. if I'm no longer me, if I'm not able to espouse my grand theory of everything to anybody who will listen, I don't know if I could go on. Like, I really don't. That is my biggest fear. So, when I read that line, I actually got a chill. Yeah, well, it's it's a loss of identity, and especially for someone like Sam Beckett, who was such a thinker, he's mm -hmm. a genius, he knows so much, and to just not be able to access the stuff that's trapped in his mind. Um, there's a, a part in it where it says the first thing he reminds himself of every leap is his name. Like, that's a really sad thing to think of, especially mm. for someone who invented a time machine. You know, it, it's funny because the book 
touches upon something that the series gradually forgot about. And I feel like this is almost the, the Groundhog Day problem. When a time travel story is like sort of like a reset, which I guess like Sam's mind could theoretically be reset with every leap depending on how he Swiss cheesed, then they shouldn't really know anything even if they knew it before, right? Or the people they interact with shouldn't know anything. It should be like the first time every time. But because narrative being what it is and stories being what they are, you need to have sort of a narrative through line that builds and builds. So eventually the Swiss cheesing factor is going to play less of a role unless it's convenient for the plot than it would say like in earlier episodes of the series where Sam is really fumbling and trying to figure out who the hell he is. By season five, he remembers the project. He remembers Gushy. He remembers Al. He remembers everything but Donna, basically. You know, he's Sam. He doesn't leap in and say, what's my last name anymore? Yeah. And I don't know if that's just because it was expedient for storytelling and it would have been a real drag for, you know, the writers to have to go through this same stuff every time. Um, it's just, it's just unwieldy. Or if, you know, leaping has a cumulative effect and like maybe he can remember a little more every time, even if it's not the same stuff, he just has a greater retention of the stuff he can remember. But in this book, they take it down to the studs with each leap, apparently. The first thing I have to do is remind myself of my own name. And I thought that that was neat because it's something that they couldn't do in the TV show because it would get too tedious. I think it's just like it, – it just depends because it, what's convenient for the story. But I don't know. I guess I kind of in my mind thought it was like somehow either worse the first time or – something to do with the accumulative, like you said, like he just sort of builds on it as the longer he's leaping. I think that you got to, whatever works for your headcanon, whatever works for the story. But I just think it's interesting to bring Sam down to such a vulnerable place in the first book where he might not even remember who he is, which is something the series, you know, started out strong with and, and lost. Yeah. Well, that was also another um, theme that was in shock theater and another thing that worries him about going to an asylum because part of that is losing your identity. And he becomes Bob Watkins, like what's left of Sam Beckett at that point. Yeah, that's true because it, he would be Bob Watkins for the rest of his life. And then, you know, if he had the horror of, I guess in the 50s, like in shock theater, um, 1957, Electroshock therapy is not going to be beyond the pale for any kind of institution that he finds himself in. So it is a real fear. So, yeah, like I said, the, the novel did have some strengths and they mostly relate to Sam and his inner struggle. There was one terrific line that I just loved that was so quintessentially Sam and it's not any way that I ever thought of um, Project Quantum Leap and the way it works, but I want to read it because it's very short, but it's Al having sort of a flashback of him and Sam talking. And Sam says this to Al. Time, Sam murmured. Changing time. It would be like solving a crossword puzzle in four dimensions, making sure you don't change the wrong things. Like Cat's Cradle. He chuckled. String theory. I never thought of string theory as a fourth dimensional construct. Even though it makes sense because time is fourth dimensional, Cat's Cradle is a perfect illusion. It's like a perfect allegory. I mean, I just thought that line was mm. – I thought that line was perfect. Yeah. So – Nice. Yeah. That was a nice one, Ashley. Again, so where she got the Sam stuff right, I think she really got it right. And where the book was particularly affecting, in my opinion, was when Sam felt the most vulnerable 
And I guess maybe because it tied into the broader universe that we already knew with shock theater. Mm. Yeah. It, well, it brings up a lot of thoughts you would think he would have and a lot of questions that maybe wouldn't be brought up on the show, but like is just interesting to kind of muse about like, Sam using other people's toothbrushes. What does he feel of that? Yes. He yeah. thinks germs yeah. will die of confusion, I guess. I don't know. That was cute, too. <laughs> so, I don't know if you guys have any other positive things to point out before we get into some of the more problematic aspects of the story. I mean, I don't. I think really the weakest element to me is the leap portion of it. And I don't even yeah. really think it's that weak. I just think like it's pretty average. But there was a lot of other stuff building up like i think the stuff at the project whether it contradicts what's going on or not in the show or things you're like i don't know about that like it still builds up the world in the books in an interesting way yeah so i have like a lot written down about the project not as much about the the leap part of it and uh, to be honest with the leap part of it um when I'm reading books, I, I do learn visually a little better. So it, it is a little bit hard to follow some stuff. I'm like, which one's Jesse? Which one's McFarlane mm-hmm. again? Like, it is a little bit harder to follow than than a show for me. But I just kind of glom on to the, uh, the project stuff, especially because I already know who Sam and Al are. I already know what the project is. What's going on here? How is this? Does this work? So uh, first of all, they, they go into what happens to Sam between leaps? Where is he? Mm-hmm. He's in this blue void where it's all of time and no time. It's everything and nothing all at the same time. And he's like, I, who are you? What's going on? Can I go home? It doesn't really answer any questions. It's just interesting to think, what is Sam doing? Yeah. And apparently GTFW speaks to him while he's in the void, telling him, no, you can't go home yet. Like He's almost like a little lapdog. No, 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 not yet. I promise one day. I mean, obviously, we didn't see Mirror Image at that time. but uh, Yes. <laughs> yeah. Liar. Well, I think even calling it GTFW is a thing from the books, too. Like, it never came up in the show. Matt, you would be the uh, the authority on that with Behind the Mirror Image. But in my mind, that was something from the show. But if it's from the novels, yeah, that tracks. I mean, yeah, I couldn't tell you when it first comes up, but I think you're right. It, it's Yeah, the acronym is from the novels. Yeah, because he says God, time, fate, or whatever, I think early on in season one, like in one of those like narrations saying like, I don't know what leaped me around, but just saying like, this is GTFW, like an entity is very prominent in the novels. Yeah, it's quite a fan thing. Yeah. I know that this is kind of jumping around some of the project stuff, but one thing that I found related to that, because in the prologue, you have Sam somewhere in the in-between stage during a leap. And GTFW or some entity is talking to him. In the course of this book, they sort of do a ham-fisted thing with Ziggy redesigning his Mm. or her or (laughs) its own program. And (laughs) the voice going up an octave, I guess the the transition of Ziggy from he in the earlier seasons to she in the later seasons. Right. <laughs> Which doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't at all. But I mean, that's its own separate thing. But at the very end, then in the epilogue, when Sam is talking to GTFW or it's talking to him, can I go home yet? The voice sounds an octave higher. Oh. So are we to infer from that that GTFW is talking to Sam through Ziggy somehow? What? Is what? Ziggy GTFW? It was just an interesting wrinkle. I didn't make that connection. Maybe wow. it has to do with they talk about this is something introduced in the the books also the fact that Ziggy is like an amalgam of like circuits and computer stuff but also cells from like Sam and Al so it's like part Sam and Al's baby 
Yeah, it's and they're they're referred to like his parents, like they're raising the Ziggy baby together, and <laughs> so Ziggy has like personality traits from both of them. And I guess Sam had said on the show he wanted a computer that wasn't just a number cruncher. You know, he wanted it to have human traits. Yes. So maybe because there's that connection, the same connection that makes Al remember all this stuff that that Ziggy would remember. Like maybe that's why Sam hears Ziggy. That's so weird. My mind is blown. I can't believe I didn't spot that. That's so cool. When it said going up an octave, and you had just had Tina, like Tina's last line in the book is saying, maybe the voice will get higher or something something along those lines. It's it's a very deliberate parallel. And I'd yeah. be interested to speak to Ashley if that's what she intended and to read the next three novels since she wrote them to see if they explore that a little bit more. But that remains to be seen. Maybe we'll get Ashley on. So let's keep a pin in that. That's so interesting. Allison, you were just talking about like sort of the bio aspect of Ziggy. Yeah. One thing that I noticed that Ashley wrote in this is that in the accelerator chamber, where is it? Okay. Yeah. Ziggy has these gelatinous bio circuits that run throughout the imaging chamber. It wasn't the accelerating chamber. So So it's almost like the bio circuits. I I couldn't help but think of Voyager, right? It doesn't Voyager have like bio goo. (laughs) <laughs> that it uses for the computer. Yeah. I don't believe we heard about that anywhere in the series, like having some no. kind of biogel. And I don't even know if it even comes up in any of the other books. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I just find it so interesting, Ziggy having these human traits and having pieces of Sam and Al and like that kind of bleeding in, like what parts of Ziggy are Sam and what parts are Al? What? (laughs) I love that aspect. Uh, uh, Maybe this is the origin. It's probably is the origin of Sam's white streak. (laughs) No, Ashley wrote the origin of the white streak in a different one. (laughs) I believe she wrote it in this one too. Or Al speculates that the white streak might have come from Sam taking some of his own brain cells, even though he would never admit it. Yes. It did because it ties into the thing in Prelude. Yeah. Yeah. So it is the reason, but there's a whole thing behind. I don't know. It's silly to me. <laughs> okay, so she she elaborates on that. <laughs> she does. Yeah, we'll come on to that because Al just muses on it in passing in this book. I don't know why it's a speculation for him when you see what it is, but <laughs> we're gonna need like a four hour special for Prelude. <laughs> oh my god, there's so much. Um, you know, I find this interesting too. We touched on the fact that uh, Tina is a genius. Yeah. In this book, um, they say that she has the second highest IQ at the project under Sam. Like she is the smartest yeah. person there. She's the only one who understands these circuits. And that's why all this stuff is going wrong, because Ziggy is upgrading her himself or themself and uh, making things go wrong. And they can't find Tina because she's mad at Al. And the whole time, like... <laughs> I was really annoyed because she was just like, mm, I'm not going to talk to you, Al. I'm here in, <laughs> on vacation. And it's like, what? Okay, but Sam's going to fucking die <laughs> or something. <laughs> something is going to happen. And she's just like, I'm going to fuck off from work. It's like, dude, you work there. Like, you, he, this is your job. Like, I guess she's the only one who understands it. So she can't be fired or something. But like, real dick move. I got to say. 
Al said Beth's name. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's a reason to let Sam die in the past. <laughs> this is not a good look for Tina. Not a good look for Tina. Like, I'm not saying her feelings are invalid. It's just you can't just fuck off from this project where your boss is trapped in time. Yeah, Allison, you pointed out the, I'm sorry, the worst part of the back at the project stuff. That Al saying Beth's name and Tina, that's three's company level bullshit. That's like, it was all a big misunderstanding, you know? <laughs> that, that would be something Al would be mentioning in the background of an episode, and then like it would just be like a two-second comedy plot, you know, like oh, yes. I said best name, and Tina's mad at me. Do 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 do. Like it's not something, <laughs> especially when it's as serious as the stuff going on in this one. Like it's it's just doesn't work. It is a serious thing, and it is like it's supposed to be poignant for Al and his whole history with Beth, and how much it actually you know wounds him to the core, and how he can't face up to it and even talk to anybody, especially someone else like that he's romantically involved with about it. He even ends that aspect of the story with much more of a hard line. Like, you shouldn't say her name. Um, it, it, they never come to any kind of reconciliation about it, even though Tina wants to, because it's too much of a sensitive topic for Al. But the way they handled it just completely negated any seriousness because of every valid point you just made hilariously, by the way, Allison. I love when you do the <laughs> Tina voice. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, it's like almost they, they took a part that could be actually very poignant and very much of a character development, character beat for Alentina and sort of zapped it with just stupidity. And it, it was unfortunate because I think it could have been something really good. Uh, maybe they should have made it that like – I don't, they weren't able to reach Tina and she didn't know how serious it was because he kept calling her and then she would like yeah. hang up on him and stuff. And it just felt like she, if she knows the seriousness of the situation, if she doesn't, I don't know why Al didn't mention it, but if she does know the seriousness of the situation, like why is she just acting like a baby about it? Like is she supposedly this genius? Hmm. I don't know. It just didn't gel. It's a definite downfall in, in the book, especially with, with the fan stuff, because it does Tina a great disservice, even though they built her up completely. Ashley builds her up amazingly in this book. She actually turns her into a human being instead of a bimbo. Yeah, she has like two lines in the actual show. And it and also like it's not clear in the show why she's there at the project, because we know that it's like Al's girlfriend and I guess she's been mentioned like having affairs with Gushy and all this other stuff so there was some capacity at the project but it was never really clear what she did so it was nice to see what her function there was Pulse communications technician wasn't it? Oh was that something they mentioned on the show? Uh yeah Leap for Lisa though so They did you're right. Yeah but nobody knows what that is Yeah <laughs> well, you know what? Pulse communications technician now. Let's just retcon this with everything we know. There's like some kind of biogel running around the imaging chamber. Tina is apparently the hardware side of Ziggy, while Gushy is the software side of Ziggy. And pulse communication technician, maybe it is how all the relays are sequenced in Ziggy so that um, she can become sentient with her fuzzy logic and do what she has to do. Maybe it's a hardware thing. There, I just fixed it. Well done. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean... I, you, you did better than me. I only got these tools to work with. I'm attempting to build duotronic circuits with stone knives and bearskins. No, that, that makes as much sense as anything. Well, we definitely know that it has to do with hardware and not software because they, they make it a point that Gushy is like, I am not the hardware guy. I, like, I know the programming. I don't know how to fix these circuits. The only one who understands it is Tina. 
Okay, so let's let's get into some of that because Ziggy is having problems in this to the point where Ziggy's malfunctioning, but it turns out that Ziggy is trying to reprogram Ziggy by coming up with different hardware parameters for them to install on routine maintenance. Yeah, yeah, she's upgrading herself. But how is she producing these plans and getting them into the hands of the techni- I'm so confused about that because they're walking around <laughs> with paper mm. blueprints. At the project. Yeah, maybe she's just printing them out and then they're like, oh, I guess this is what we're supposed to be doing. I don't <laughs> is know. It, is it just like McFly, read my facts? Maybe, maybe she's like mimicking the voice of other people like, oh, hey, it's me, Gushy, you need to do this. And they're like, oh, Gushy, oh, he must have left. Well, here's some plans, I guess I <laughs> I guess I better just tear out this thing and rebuild it. Yeah, like, hey, it's me, Tina, you need to put these circuits in. <laughs> It's like all of a sudden like a HAL 9000 situation or whatever the number was. See, I, I was thinking more than naked now, but that's, that's a less cool reference. Acting Captain Wesley Crusher. <laughs> Ziggy's like, we're all going to have ice cream for dinner. <laughs> really? Because oh, Dr. Beckett said so. I guess. <laughs> You got like a Shimoda in the corner, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> isolinear chips, taking bits of Ziggy apart and juggling them. Yeah, yeah, but it's Gushy. Gushy is the Shimoda <laughs> of the situation. <laughs> well, now I feel strange, but also good. <laughs> Two other things that Ashley establishes, you know, back at the project for all the fans um, is what the waiting room looks like. Anyway, what her waiting room looks like before we ever saw it on screen. Yeah, it's pretty complex the way she wrote it. She wrote it way better than the show. The show is just a blue screen yeah. <laughs> with a couple props. <laughs> she wrote it with a budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's like a hospital room. There's an observation deck. Um, Sam's uh, body, quote, uh, is hooked up to monitors. They do mm-hmm. confirm that they shave Sam's body. There you go. Didn't I yeah. tell you that Sam has a clam squad <laughs> and they take care of his body between leaps? You know what? <laughs> I, I will eat my words on that one. They have someone who shaves Sam. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, right? <laughs> I told you that his body was just sitting there as like a limp shell between leaps. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff. They established that the PQL members have quarters at the project. Yeah. So they live there. Whether they have other houses too, I don't know. But Al, it's described that he has kind of a Spartan room. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an artificial cave system. In a a massive cave, yes. And uh, that's, I guess, what Leon styles there 11 levels down, right? When Leon escapes. So the show actually tracked with that sort of that subterranean aspect of the project. It's funny because they went away from the ground level aspect. Of it. I, I, I believe during the original Saga Cell when it was spoken by a man and not by Deborah, that they did show like the project facility above ground, these white buildings. Yes. They did. It could have been part of it though. Yeah, that's what I mean. So I think that the book actually tracked well with sort of that aspect of it and then built upon that to have the subterranean aspect of it, which turned out to be canon in the show. In the giant yeah. glowing mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. You know, that, that <laughs> the secret, top secret giant, giant glowing, glowing mountain. mountain. Yeah. <laughs> um there's a Sheet line button. that there's a line where Sam asks like Al like how big the imaging chamber is because mm. he's like walking beside him down a whole street. 
So there's kind of the question there, like, how big is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to get your take on that. I think that is a perfectly valid and interesting question because Al does walk a lot in the show. How come he's not walking into walls? <laughs> I don't think he ever walks that far in the show. If, he, if there's ever a significant distance to travel, he just relocates. We don't ever really see him walk that far. I feel like where I remember it most vividly, and they even put it in the saga cell, is when he's walking with Sam and eight and a half months down the street when Sam is pregnant as uh, Billie Jean. They're outside Mm. and they're walking down this long, long road. There might have been some shots in Unchained as well. Either way, we have seen Al walk, I think, a fairly significant, mm. bigger than you would think the imaging chamber to be. So I'm thinking, is it like yeah. a holodeck? Like, does it have a, a floor that is like a treadmill, like an omnidirectional yeah. treadmill or something? Like, how does that work? Maybe it has some rules like the holodeck where it's like they kind of like there's the illusion of walking, but it's really just the stuff is moving around you. I don't know. I feel like there has to be something like that. It has to be kind of sizable, but obviously they wouldn't have just a big football field worth of imaging chamber. That would, How much power would that be? Maybe that's why the mountain glows. Yeah. It's all just the imaging chamber. <laughs> Maybe the mountain is the imaging chamber. The actual like accelerated oh chamber is, is just a small cupboard off to the side. <laughs> the mountain is for Al. Has really high ceilings. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You never know, he might need to fly or parachute or something like that. <laughs> he does fly in this book. Like, they mention Al is, like, he flies a plane to go get Tina, I think, and, like, he's really excited mm-hmm. to be able to fly again. Yeah, that tracks. I mean, Al's a pilot, so. Yeah, I thought that was a nice detail. That was a good character beat for him. Here was a really big thing, a detail that it was added to this story. Uh, they talk about why Sam... Like, how the project was supposed to work. Mm. So it says that Sam wasn't originally supposed to time travel. Mm -hmm. He was just supposed to observe what was going on. He was supposed to be kind of like Al observing the situation. So they could observe history as it was made. Right. And something went wrong along the way. So that establishes how the project was supposed to be before he started leaping around. Then why did they have an accelerator chamber and an imaging chamber? Like, why would you need the accelerator to begin with? And I'm not faulting Ashley, (laughs) you know, for trying to give us a purpose of what Quantum Leap was supposed to be because nobody knows. So it's fair game. But that interpretation to me doesn't fit in with having the accelerator. I think they do explain that in Prelude. Ashley specifically explains that in Prelude. Okay. So we'll have that to look forward to? Yeah, I feel like at some point in the books, don't they get into like more of the reasoning why Sam would want to time travel, not just the fact yes. that he wants to observe history? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. So again, another thing, maybe we put a pin in and see how they develop. But yeah, I'm sure we get an answer about the accelerator chamber. and they, 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 She goes halfway there this time. They also mention why Dr. Beeks was at the project... Uh, that she was researching psychology of a genius and then became the psychologist at the project after all this <laughs> stuff. I, I don't understand that. I mean, was she just like some adjunct that was there observing Sam and then all of a sudden got shanghai Yeah, maybe she had like some paper or some thesis or something she was writing and then she's just like, well, I guess like now I'm on because there's a bunch of people in the imaging chamber that need that need therapy, a, which yeah, is therapy. quite different. That, that's the that's the thing. Like she is on, she's a very different role there. Therapist to people who have just travelled through time and are terrified by the experience. It's not not really the same as analysing a genius, but 
Yeah. But I guess it's interesting because, like, it, it is kind of weird that they have a psychologist at the project. Like, why did they need one before this? Yeah. There's a lot of weird, unexplained stuff in the show that a number of the novels do try and touch on bravely. Beaks being there, to me, says that they were always going to have visitors mm. in the waiting room. Again, the way Ashley writes it, it doesn't make that much sense if you think about it too hard. No matter what way you think about it, nothing really makes sense in Quantum Leap. Yeah, I'm not saying that's her fault. <laughs> yeah, like I say, it's brave, and it, she's not the only author that tries to explain stuff away that just got hand-waved away during the series itself. Matt, do you recall if they ever said on the show that Al was an engineer? I don't think so. Ah, now you're asking. <laughs> Are you looking at your book? Yeah, of course I'm looking at my book. <laughs> I, don't re- I don't remember anything. That's why I wrote the book. See, it gets complicated with the books, because I'm like, what was in the books, what was in the show, and what was in fan fiction I read that just made sense? <laughs> mm. I don't recall the show ever saying that Al was an engineer, and they make it a point to say that he is an aeronautical engineer in this, and not a structural engineer or a mechanical engineer. So I guess it yeah. makes sense for him to be an aeronautical engineer, being that he's an astronaut and a pilot? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. It just feels like it would have come up more on the show, but then again, he did everything on the show. Yeah, exactly. So they also establish he's more on the like administration side of things, which also makes sense. Yeah, and um, that he kind of resents Sam for leaving him holding the bag with everything. Yeah, because it gets stressful. I love that. I love that because Al is someone who just kind of he tries to make things kind of a joke and you know make things breezy, but he really has like a ton on his shoulders, and there would be some resentment. Yeah, there's no no reference in the series itself to Al being an engineer. Okay. Okay, so, I mean, that's something that Ashley added. I think that's a plausible addition to his character. Um, Since you have the book open, Matt, uh, where in the timeline, when uh, Al's timeline, when he's 16, would he be working on a roller coaster? Yeah, I noticed that too. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't he be like at Annapolis or... So in the year 1950... (laughs) Here's my summary. At age 16, Al wins the Golden Gloves Regional Boxing Champion and spends time working on roller coasters. He's most <laughs> oh, okay. definitely lost his virginity at this point. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Having slept with three girls in the orphanage alone. Around this time, Al dates a 16-year-old Rebecca who is killed by a drunk driver. Oh, no. Oh, right. That was in another book. Yeah. Yes. So, so yeah, Al... Al has a busy 16th year, mostly boxing and working on roller coasters. <laughs> Man, he's... Ooh, Al has a life, like... he, he He's lived yes. a million lifetimes. Yeah, it's nuts. It's absolutely crazy, so... I thought another, another detail uh, that was just kind of interesting to me was uh, Al's girlfriends paid very little attention to Sam. <laughs> so Al brought a lot of girlfriends over, but they're like... We have no time for this genius. <laughs> <laughs> we have no time for this dreamy genius. No. Yeah. He obviously never took his shirt off. Yeah. <laughs> Al was just too sexy. He he beat out Sam every time. He did. Well, talk to the, uh, the, the alcoholics out there. And of course he beat out Sam every time. Are you kidding? Yeah. Maybe Ashley is an alcoholic. <laughs> I feel like Ashley is definitely an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that it's Al Dash. Alcoholic. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> the fan term for people who love the character Al. Okay, that's an old school fandom yeah. term for yeah. Al fans. <laughs> we're not trying to, you know, smear Ashley's yeah. reputation. 
No, I don't believe no. that she is an, an alcoholic, just an alcoholic. Yes, no, no slander going on here, okay? <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a sneaky reference in here. Did you guys catch when Elle says, that looks like a damn fine cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't pick up on that. Please but, yeah. elaborate, I still don't know what you're talking about. That's a Twin Peaks reference. What? <laughs> oh, God, but I wouldn't think Twin Peaks if I'm thinking Quantum Leap. Chris, where were you in the 90s? Hmm. Yeah, that's he says damn fine cup of coffee. That's a very specific phrasing, and I, I, it has to be Twin Peaks, especially around the time this was published. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't a Twin Peaks fan. I binged it about a year or a year and a half ago when the new series came on Showtime, and I sat through the first season. I thought it was pretty damn good, and then the second season was just such a pile of horse crap. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they start doing the Miss Twin Peaks pageant and yeah, stuff. Yeah, that, 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 what was the... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, we could do a whole freaking Twin Peaks podcast. Never mind. No tangent Ooh. there. But, Ooh, yeah, uh, fangent. Yeah. <laughs> fangent. Fangent, Twin Peaks. Exactly. Everybody tune in to uh, maybe a future edition of Fangent where Allison and uh, Matt talk about Twin Peaks and Chris's, I don't know. I, I'll take the Matt role in that. I don't know. I haven't seen the second season of it, so I, I can talk about the first season. Oh, man, you stopped while the getting was good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, my uh, last note is, what the hell is a kosh? That is the little truncheon, like a little stick that they used in like Keystone Cop movies to beat people over the head with and knock them out. I think it's made of leather. Oh. It's like a leather sort of club. Why did that lady have one to give to Sam? <laughs> because she had to get him out of jail. I mean, that was Aunt Vera, Aunt Vera Shaver. I, I wrote it down as Truncheon Ex Machina. Oh. And so I forgot that they called it a kosh in the book, but yeah. Okay, I didn't know. I was, it's a, and a kosh, and they never explain it. It's like, is this a commonly known term, kosh? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so, but it's very TV too, because I'm sure Sam, even though it wasn't portrayed in the book, I'm sure Sam somehow got the deputy in there. He turned his back. He hit him on the back of the head with this little thing once, and the deputy dropped like a sack of bricks you know yeah and then like a timpani drum boom. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean that was one of the weaker aspects of the story and if you guys don't mind i do want to get into some of the story weaknesses because they are significant <laughs> sam being largely ineffectual in this for most of the book he's not very driven he seems very aimless i think allison you had mentioned that when we first started and then yeah. getting himself locked up to the point where he doesn't even have a plan as how he's going to get out. And then all of a sudden, this this ancillary character that they introduced for five pages, you know, 30 or 60 or 100 pages ago, gets him out of jail. He literally gets a get out of jail free card so he can go and save the day. This to me points up the biggest problem that I had with the book or a few of the biggest problems. Number one is that a lot of the scenes – um, especially the scenes between Sam and Al seem to be pointless. They don't go anywhere. They just reiterate plot elements that we already learned from reading the story. The dialogue goes in circles. The scenes go in circles. And honestly, Sam and Al, to me, in this novel have zero chemistry. Zero chemistry. They're constantly at odds with one another. Wasn't that the show? <laughs> No, but Isn't there's the always they're at odds with each other. There's always a basis of friendship and camaraderie. I felt none of that in this book. I think most of their mm. most of their scenes were filler that that went nowhere. And there was one part of the book where Ashley she makes the characters I'm sorry dumb because Sam is the leaper, Al is the observer. Yet they have a fundamental misunderstanding of how leaping works. There's a scene 
page 180, if you guys want to look it up at home, Sam says, well, I'm going to prevent the accident by doing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is a quote. Sam, if you know how to do it and you do it, why haven't you leaped? Well, maybe I have to be here to do it. Maybe Bob wouldn't carry through. What? Yeah. Like Sam can't just have an idea to change something and then leap. Like he's got to be there to change it. That's the whole point of the freaking show. Like why would Bob (laughs) know what to do when he gets back? He just sends him a psychic message. Here's what you do. (laughs) Every leap would be so quick. Just, yeah, figure out the resolution, leap out. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like the time game in Bill and Ted. Yes. So it, it's just like, I, <laughs> like, why was that scene even, how did it even make the cut? Maybe she's thinking of that scene in a fan favorite, Thou Shalt Not, when <laughs> Sam's like, well, I'm not going to cheat. And they're like, all right, just promise that you won't and you'll leap out. All right, I won't cheat. <laughs> Let's leap. <laughs> I mean, it's like you've seen the show before, right? Sam just can't have an idea that, hey, I'm going to make this declaration. I will fix this. All right. Leaping out. <laughs> it's like, no, you actually have to fix it. Yeah, that, that took me right out of the book. And that is where I think that um, I'm looking forward to seeing the next three books that Ashley puts out to see if she gets the dynamic between Sam and Al um, down any better. I dig that a lot of her books connect to each other, too, so that's kind of good. Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, this could be just phase one of a multi-story arc. We could see an arc where they start to jive better as the stories go on, and maybe that's deliberate for Mm. fans that might only be coming at this from the books, so that you have something that builds. I think you're being very kind. Yeah, listen, I gotta. Somebody writes something for a reason, you got to give them the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean it makes it right. It just means, okay, let me put myself in their position and see what they might have been going for. But that being said, this is largely why when I first read this book, I hated it. Because again, I felt it just wholly failed to capture the dynamic of Quantum Leap as I knew it and as I loved it. And the scenes that you should be looking forward to the most in the book, which is the Sam and Al stuff and the interaction between these great pals is the part that fell the most flat. Yeah, I think um, Al was mostly focused on trying to fix things and not let Sam really know how bad things are at the project, why it felt so disconnected. I mean, I agree they didn't have as many um, great scenes together, mostly because he was focused on that. I don't think the characterization was really bad, but it, it wasn't the closest Sam and Al story. Well, I mean, so that that's sort of like I have a couple of final thoughts. If you guys um, – do you have any final thoughts you want to get into or some, some aspects of the story that we haven't touched upon? I think we got a lot of good traction out of this. Um, I'll start with you, Allison. Yeah, I think like uh, I really do appreciate all of the stuff at the project. And I guess talking it over now, I, d- I do appreciate the book more than – I think I gave it credit for and that aspect. I still think the leap was not really the greatest, but I think that was a plus because there was just a lot to get out there and it would have been just overwhelming to just cram it with a lot more stuff and a more complex leap. Hmm. And how about you, Matt? Yeah, same for me, really. This feels like the pilot episode of any kind of high concept show where the actual stuff that's happening has to be very simple and straightforward because you're too busy trying to explain the mechanics of it. This feels a bit weird because we know the mechanics of Quantum Leap, but if you take it as being the beginning of something new, 
I can give it a pass for the fact that the leap is nothing particularly exciting because it is introducing so much other stuff and it is setting up the novel range to be something that's more about what's happening at the project and shifting the tone. So I don't have a lot of good stuff to say about the leap itself, but um, I can understand why it is the way it is. And there's certainly, um, yeah, plenty of good world building stuff in there as well. Yeah, if, if I was uh, Ginger Buchanan, this is what I would start the range with, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And yeah, I think that this does an okay job of uh, kicking off the novel series. Um, I, I, as you guys said, I think it does a really good job of bringing the broad strokes of the Quantum Leap universe to more casual fans or even readers that might not know what Quantum Leap is. But at the end of the day, it really fails to capture the magic and the chemistry that made the TV show so special. So there's room to grow there, but all the world building stuff and all of the future stuff back at the project became the scaffolding on which the rest of the book series would blossom. I know that's probably a mixed metaphor, but you can't take that away from it. I think that that's where this novel really shines because it puts so much good foundation in place that a lot of other writers were able to build positively on. And for that, we have to thank Ashley McConnell. Hmm. Yeah, thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Ashley. Yeah, so thank you. I think that is going to wrap up our discussion of Quantum Leap the Novel, a.k.a. Carney Knowledge, but don't go anywhere because we're going to go to a break, but when we get back, as promised, we will have that interview with Ginger Buchanan. So stay tuned, everyone. On the latest episode of Fangent. Fangent is what we talk about when we're not talking about Quantum Leap. I'm talking about the wonderful game Animal Crossing. Oh, it's like Angry Birds? <laughs> I was getting drunk in London. Lucky! I know, it was brilliant. <laughs> I saw the monkeys live. I made like a, a Quantum Leap section of my island. Of course you did. <laughs> did you really? I did, yeah. There's like a buttload of early episodes of Doctor Who that are missing. But what's now started happening is there's some teams putting animation in high-definition colour widescreen against the original soundtrack. You know the monkeys don't play their own instruments, right? <laughs> Duh. It'd be like saying to somebody, you know pro wrestling isn't real, right? <laughs> I was seeing the premiere of one of these on a big screen at a cinema in London with about 100 other Doctor Who fans. That's nuts. Plus fandom. There I was, finally, seeing Mike Nesmith sing the songs that I've been waiting to hear him sing for I don't know how many years. That's great. To find out how to hear this and other Patreon exclusive shows, go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. That's patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. Matt's acting like he hasn't even heard the name. This is like the game of the pandemic. Yeah, I know where I've heard of it. Your Facebook post saying I've just spent (laughs) six hours playing Animal Crossing. That's where I've heard it from. Me too. This is Natasha Pavlovich, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. As promised, here is our interview with Ginger Buchanan. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Ginger. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, 
I am especially thrilled to speak to you. It's been a while since we've spoken. Uh, since we've spoken, it's been a speaking. while since we've spoken. <laughs> See, I'm a little nervous talking to you. How weird is that? But uh, in case uh, listeners out there don't know, Ginger is the person who gave me my big break as an author. She was the editor in charge of the Quantum Leap novel program at Berkeley Publishing. And Ginger, can you tell me a little bit about the genesis of the novel series? How it all came to be. Well, at the time, Putnam Berkeley was owned by MCA, Music Corporation of America, which also owned Universal. And uh, that included both the television and uh, movie division. And we did tie-ins for them regularly, often at their direction. Thus, we did the tie-ins to the abysmal Steven Spielberg's Earth 2 <laughs> and the one with the dolphin. And I had a... a a person in licensing that I dealt with regularly, her name was Virginia. I can't remember her last name. I approached her because I was a big fan of the series. And because of the episodic nature of it, it was an obvious choice for novelizations because you could just fit freestanding stories into the general idea. So I approached her and the initial contract was for three, a novelization and two original novels. Okay. So this is where I guess Ashley McConnell comes in. Yes. Ashley was a friend that I knew and I knew she was a big fan of the show. And she had written some, uh, as I recall, fantasy novels. Set, she she lived at the time in the, uh, the Southwest, some fantasy novels set in that part of the world. So I approached her. I see. If I could just back up for a second, I wanted to maybe just get a little bit broader in the sense that when you were dealing with NBC Universal, how active were they in developing the editorial vision for the series? Did they give you like parameters of what you could and couldn't do? Were they like a were they really involved in it or did they leave you pretty much to your own devices? Well, for good or ill, I embarked upon this project kind of towards the end of the run. Uh, and again, for good or ill, I'm sure that anyone that knows Quantum Leap knows that Don Belisario had a falling out with Universal. Mm -hmm. He actually, I think after Leap was over, he had a production office on the Universal block and he actually moved. So subsequent Belisario's productions were not from Universal. So quite frankly, Nobody cares. I mean, it's never the licensing department that gives you trouble. It's the creatives. It's the showrunners. It's the people who control the content. Uh, and that can range from, you know, just do what you want, which, again, became the fact with Quantum Leap to we have to see everything in every stage. Mm -hmm. And I've had those kinds of projects, too. But with Quantum Leap, I was fortunate in the sense that Balisario, having gotten disenchanted, he basically just walked away. So I did have to send all the proposals to the licensing office, but they never questioned anything. Wow. Okay. So being that you were left basically to your own devices. Indeed. This is why I'm particularly fond of this project. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's that's unusual in itself. So it is very unusual. The trek has varied from year to year because trek has been along around for so long. They have no idea what's going on now with but you know, sometimes they cared, sometimes they didn't. Mm. I I can tell you stories about other time projects, not necessarily mine, but Quantum Leap, I knew myself from doing licensed product what the parameters had to be 
and I only forwarded proposals that I was sure would meet those criteria. But because there was nobody second guessing, I was able to do books that actually were prequels and sequels to actual episodes, Hmm. as you know, and that's unusual. Right. So, I mean, that kind of ties into the next question I had. Um, Given that you had free hand, did you develop an editorial mission statement or guidelines of your own for the novel series, which apparently you, you had some stuff in mind, but specifically, were there types of leaps that you were looking for? Were you more interested in maintaining the flavor of, say, like a traditional episode, even if it was a sequel or a prequel? Or were you more interested in expanding on the possibilities within the larger Quantum Leap universe? I would say the former. I wasn't looking to, they they themselves, if you will, broke new ground in the final season when Sam jumps back on his timeline, which had never happened before. And there was certainly more leaping into uh, historical people. Those actually, although I love the Elvis episode and I love the one where he is Marilyn's driver, uh, those actually, to me, were the, were not the most interesting episodes. So I wasn't necessarily looking for proposals of that nature. Did I ever think put anything down on paper? I don't think so. If I had, you probably would have seen it since you wrote one of the novels. But as you also know, I went to a lot of the specific fan conventions and got a lot of the fanzines. And when I talked to people, I said, this is the difference between writing a fan story and writing an authorized novel. This is what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. So I, I had it in my head. I'm not sure I ever put it down on paper. Yeah. I've, if you had a Bible or guidelines, I don't recall. I mean, you might no, have sent it to me in a did. letter or an email or something no. like that. But uh, beyond that. And that gets to um, another question that I had. As editor of the series, you were very receptive to working with new and unpublished authors. I mean, I'm a perfect example. And this is really unusual in publishing. Can you tell me why you were so keen on working with the fan community? And do you think that having the free hand that you did sort of helped you do that? To answer the second part of the question first, no. When you're sending something into a licensor, by and large, they don't. But I mean, if somebody has done a lot of license work, they're going to assume you can meet the deadlines and, and things like that. But they don't much care. I mean, occasionally you'll get somebody that like some famous name author wants to do a tie-in novel and presumably the person, at the, if they're famous enough, the licensor will know them. But basically, uh, licensors don't care who's writing the books. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. The first part of the question is that, in fact, I was actively looking for people who were fans of the show. Now, if some of them happened to be professional writers, which was true of Ashley, which was true of Sandy Schofield, who who were, were, is Dean Smith and Chris Rush, both of whom are professional writers, Melanie Ron, there are a few people who were fans of the show. And in many instances, once the program was up and running, those authors approached me because they wanted to write a Quantum Leap novel. Uh, But I really wanted people who knew the show, who could keep the flavor of the show, the flavor of the relationship between Sam and Al and the mission statement, if you will, of the show. So the fan community came through, I think, remarkably well. So to go back to the first few books that I guess Ashley wrote all four of the first novels. I guess, and that was to, simpler from the point of view of making a contract. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. I got you. So why I ask is because since you were setting out this new series, did you collaborate with her to talk about the types of stories that you wanted to do for the first few books to help establish? No, she just came up with the... Yeah. I mean, the novelization was obvious, but past that, no. I mean, and again, I don't remember specifically, but it's perfectly possible that she pitched six ideas and I picked three, you know, or something like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And now we we, uh, touched on the novelization before, but as far as I know, the novelization only came out on the UK editions, the box tree editions. Is that correct? No, I can hold it up and show you. (laughs) That's what I don't have. (laughs) Yeah, we have here Quantum Leap, the novel. But this was this was not the novel was Carney Knowledge. This was an original story by Ashley. This was not a novelization of an episode. It's interesting you would mention that. This was the first of the Berkeley program, but I did had not remembered in the box of Quantum Leap novels, there are three box tree and one from Corgi that I had completely forgotten existed, quite frankly. And they would have done a separate deal with Universal. They didn't buy them from us. They bought them from Universal. I see. So, okay, Box Tree distributed them. They bought them from, but it was still your your projects, the Box Tree ones. They they were just picking up what you had already published. Uh, yes. Yeah. Th- that now those are true novelizations. That's a novelization of uh, oh, Portrait the for Private Troyan. Eye one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Portrait for Troyan and of uh, played against Seymour. Yeah, I had nothing to do with that. That was I a see. completely ind- independent deal. I didn't want, I mean, I thought it, it made sense to start out with the, the, the novelization of the pilot. But beyond that, I didn't want to do just novelizations of the episodes. I see. I see. So as the series got established with Ashley's first few books, what was the initial response and how did it evolve from there? Well, I counted up and I think there's, if you count the there A to 18. Z, there's like 18, 19 with A to Z. Yeah. yeah. The fact that there were 19 meant they were selling well enough to continue. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. If it had not done well after the first contract, there wouldn't have been any more. I have a lot of novelization. The, the last, virtually the last thing I did before I retired, not the last author I bought, that was a guy named Mark Lunch, was the novelizations of Leverage which was also on its way out. And that was only three books. And I did three Poltergeist novels and three Forever Night novels. And they always have an audience. It's the audience for the show. But the Quantum Leap one sold quite well. And thus there were 19, including the, you know, A to Z. Mm. When the novel series was launched, Quantum Leap was still on the air. It was and, still in the air, but it was, yeah. it was toward, it, I think it was the beginning of last season. I could look at the copyright date, but I didn't. <laughs> Well, I think that you and I had discussed this personally when I first met you, but um, because the show was always growing and evolving, did that present any kind of unique challenges for you in your editorial process? And I guess the real question I'm getting at is, were you setting stuff down in the books that all of a sudden the show contradicted? I don't think so, Chris. Not anything I remember. Some of them were just completely adventures, like the Loch Ness Leap thing. I mean, that wasn't going to step on any cannon. And the ones that came after the show went out the air, of course, weren't going to... I mean, if you wrote a novel after Donna existed, Donna existed, you know? Mm. My One of my favorites is Pulitzer, which, of course, is wound so tightly into MIA. that couldn't exist if MIA didn't, hadn't existed. But I don't think there's anything in any of the novels that 
wound up being made not redundant, but that made wound up being uh, not canonical because of something that they did in the show. They didn't make that. I mean, they Donna came, uh, you know, out of kind of not nowhere, but in the course of Quantum Leap, the, the biggest change ever made was the jumping back on this timeline. And that was because Belisario wanted to do it. Actually, I think it was because Bacala wanted to do a Civil War story. Hmm. So all of a sudden, you could go into your ancestors. I don't think there's any of the novels, that, as I recall, I'm pretty sure, that deal with that. We never... Actually, never, there is. You, which one? Uh, you bought one by John Peel called Independence, where Sam you're leaps right, back to right, the Revolutionary right. War. You're right. I remember that, that one specifically because, yeah, he was in Smithtown where I grew up, yeah. which was funny to me. Yeah. And he's British. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're right. I'd forgotten about that. But that would not have been contracted for until after the leap between the states. We would not have done that. Yeah, I do believe that was one of the last yes, slots. Yes, it was. It was yeah. the, like the last third or the second to last three that yeah. came out. The show being going off the air did in some ways free us up. We knew that nothing we did was then going to turn out to be not possible in terms of the show because the show was off the air. Yeah, well, we're um, just starting our novel review for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, if if I do come across any anachronisms, I'll write them down and send them to you. (laughs) It's been a long time. I I remember these books fondly. I remember some of the stories of the contracting them and the authors and, and for many of them this was the only book they were fa- they were quantum leap fan writers these were the only books they ever wrote me included yeah. so when you began the novel series it seemed to me like you were doing much more standard types of leap leap stories yeah. and then as the series progressed much like quantum leap itself it seemed to me that um you were more receptive to doing some more i wouldn't say outrageous stories but more fantastic stories Loch Ness leap being one of them independence being another one was that a conscious choice on your part i don't actually think of Loch Ness leap as being something that could not have been done on Neither one of them were things that could not have been done on the show. Independence couldn't have been done until after the leap between the states. But we had angels in in Quantum Leap. We had the Christmas episode and things like that. So they would occasionally dip a toe in the fantastical, too. To Mm. say nothing of what the hell is going on in the last episode of the series (laughs) (laughs) yeah we just did our mirror image episode and we all loved it but it is uh you know it's an outlier it's a real head scratcher what belisar's wife deborah pat she famously said that he did that instead of spending five years with a therapist it's all about his life apparently Mm -hmm. yeah but i mean as far as an episode of quantum leap it sure is memorable I'll give it that. Oh, yes. And whether you like it or you hate it, you're still talking about it. That screenshot of the end of an older man with a child, that's Don and his father. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. Since we're talking about Mirror Image, the final novel of the series, Mirror's Edge, came out long after the series finale. And since at that point, I have to think that you knew you were ending the series with that novel. Did you work with Carol Davis, the author of that book, to come up with a story that might specifically act as a finale to the novel series? No, not specifically. I never saw the novels as building on one another the way the television series did. Uh, There were some exceptions where uh, Liz Storm's two books are both specific related to episodes, you know, Angel Underwear and Pulitzer. But I never saw them as the novels as having the same kind of connective tissue that the show did. 
I guess I did work with Carol and the idea was to kind of provide an alternate sort of thing because mirror image is interesting, but you know, not necessarily what a lot of people, fans wanted, as you mm. know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the reason I asked that question is because when I was reading Mirror's Edge, it seemed to purposely try to dovetail itself into Sam's leap into Kochberg in, in Mirror Image. It felt almost like a prequel for the finale of the series. Yeah. It, yeah. It, we wanted to fit it. I mean, yes, that was done with what had happened on on screen in the same sense that Angel Unaware and Pulitzer are. Gotcha. Gotcha. So now... Were there any kind of leaps that you wanted to do in the novel series, but for whatever reason, never got the chance to? No, not really. I mean, I, that's the, the obvious question that comes up with the, the series where they talk about the Magnum episode and the leaping into the baby and all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. No, I never went to an author and said, how about writing a book about Bach? The ideas all came from the authors. I see. So I didn't say I would like to see a book about the Loch Ness Monster. That was Dean and Chris's idea. So there was nothing specifically that I was, I wasn't assigning ideas. I was soliciting them. I see. I see. Of all the novels published, I know it's been a while, but uh, do any stand out as particular favorites for you? I like Liz Storms. You and every other novel fan, it seems, Liz seems to be the favorite. <laughs> I really do. I mean, there was some good stuff. I like your novel. I could give you the opposite easily. Um, I can't remember the name of it. C.J. Henderson, who, who Chris is no longer with us. He was an author who did a, a, a lot of tie-in work. And he said to me that he was a huge fan of the show, wanted the work. I gave him the work. He turned in a novel that it, it read like he had never watched Quantum Leap in his life. And I was really upset about it. And he would not rewrite. So I wound up hiring one of my colleagues who was a big fan of the show. And at that time, she eventually uh, left editing and is a full-time writer now. But at that time, I'm not sure. She maybe had done another time. She'd done a Buffy tie-in, I think. Hmm. I had, I hired her to rewrite Chris's novel. And that was Laura, right? Laura Ann. That was Laura Ann, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because it has um, CJ on the cover, but then you open it up and on the title page, I think it has Laura Ann's name. Yes, that was <laughs> yeah. the compromise, basically. Because Chris wasn't happy about this, obviously. It read like he had never watched the show. And that was... I'm not saying it's the worst of the novels because I think Lorraine did a good job, but it was certainly the most disappointing. I see. And the most problematic. Were there any other problematic stories that you had to hammer into shape that you recall? Uh, I don't think so. The fan writing community came through well. And with the exception of Chris Anderson, the professional writers who approached me all genuinely were fans of the show. Now, I think the more imaginative ones came from the fan writers, the professional community wrote more like standard tie-ins, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I think by and large, uh, they're all they're all pretty good, I think. Okay, yeah, I thought they were good. I guess like when going through all, all these, you, you're talking about approaching the fans and getting their takes on the show. Were you surprised at how many different interpretations of Quantum Leap came across your desk that couldn't have been more dissimilar, but yet still managed to capture the heart of the show in in their own way because you're dealing with tons of authors with different voices who are passionate about quantum leap yet you know they're all going to see it with their own unique light 
Uh, no, I think the strength of the message, if you will, the show was such that, you know, they may have looked at things in different ways, the various writers, but I think they all got the idea of what the show was about. The fan writing, the difference with the fan writing for the most part, and some of these writers did a lot of really good fan writing, was that it, it, it focused more on the relationships. Uh, you know, in infinite numbers of stories were particularly poignant considering the right now where Al dies and Sam has to deal with it. Uh, I mean, I read that story written by a, any number of writers many, many different times. And, of course, a lot that had to do with Sam's romantic life and Al's romantic life, which was in there. I mean, it was in the series and it certainly was in the books. But all of the novels tell a story and that tells us they all, it seemed to me, to tell a story that was the story that could have been told in Quantum Leap and in, in on the series in one way or another, it might have been changed. You are not asking the question, but I actually had one of the, and I can't remember her name either, one of the better fan writers actually turned me down. She did not want to write a novel. She wanted to write her own vision of the, the Quantum Leap. And uh, it a lot of her stories did focus on the relationships more than the putting right what once went wrong thing, which I think was what the show yeah. was about. Do you have uh, any memories of some wild pitches that you got that were just ridiculous, that were that were outrageous? No, actually not. Nothing. I mean, sometimes I would get the pitches that were Al die, you know, the things that then I would say, you know, this is excellent. It's well written, but it's fan fiction. It, it, we can't do this in a book, you know kind of thing but they weren't wild or crazy and of course there was all the the porn of course but that's a whole separate <laughs> thing excuse me let's be calling it slash that's a whole separate thing so well, you could have started a whole nother book series with that i'm, uh, I'm sure. sure there are people who did uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just uh, along those lines were there Anything that that you considered off limits besides, say, like the death of a major character? Because I remember in in my book, I eventually had a point where Sam dies, and you told me, "Don't nope, can't do it." And um, I was wondering if there were other sort of hard rules that you adhered to. I don't think so. I think that uh, clearly not killing off a major character, and that would have included anybody, a Gucci, anybody like that, just. Having done enough license product, the fact that they weren't paying attention didn't mean that if we did something in the novels like that, that they wouldn't have started paying attention. So I didn't want to go there, shall we say. Right. Well, I think the unique thing about the Quantum Leap tie-in series is that you could potentially have a major character die in the course of the story, but since you're dealing with time travel, have some way to prevent it or undo it, which they did on the series proper with uh, Leap for Lisa when yes. they actually did kill off Al's character. Yeah. 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 But it's like talking about Highlander, uh, which is not a time travel series. Yes, Quantum Leap is a time travel series, but that's not primarily what it is. I mean, it, it's like Diana Gabaldon's gimmick as you go through Standing Stones, uh, and her thing in the Outlander books is very much a modern day, particularly for some a modern day person, well, modern day in World War II, reacting to what it was like to live in you know medieval Scotland. But what Quantum Leap is about is putting right what once went wrong and the fact that you're traveling in time to do that is the gimmick basically and also a wonderful opportunity for, for Scott Bakula to do some 
incredible things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Well, were there any aspects of the novel series, be any aspect, its inception, its execution, uh, just stories along the way that you'd like to discuss that I haven't asked about? Uh, one thing that you haven't mentioned was the uh, the visuals, the covers. Oh, yeah. I was also fortunate in the fact that with a couple of exceptions, they're all actual paintings. And we were given a lot of visual references. In many tie-in projects, this becomes a big problem because any actor has, that's used on the cover has to sign agreement and stuff. But this was basically two people, and they were fine with any of this. So they didn't have to approve every cover, which often happens at one point in Trek, that was the case. Any cover that featured a, a not a still, not a not a still from the actual episode mm -hmm. that had to be run by Patrick Stewart or Jonathan Frakes or any any. We didn't have that at all. I mean, I you know, I had some sense when I knew what a book was about, I had some sense of what visuals I wanted. Like for instance, Pulitzer. I wanted, I asked specifically for, you know, some stills from MIA. So I had some sense of what I wanted and they were given to an artist and they're painted covers, which is rare for tie-ins actually. A lot of them are just the stills from, from an episode or screen grabs or things like that. So that was the other thing that the covers have something to do with the book. I wrote a Highlander novel and the, obviously Duncan is the protagonist, but the real protagonist is Fitz, is Roger Daltrey's character. So Fitz mm -hmm. had to be on the cover. Well, there's only about so many episodes that Fitz is in. So we had to figure out which episode, you know, which still to use. And it's a fine cover, but it has nothing to do with the book, which is about the gold rush in Alaska. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I remember I read it. <laughs> yeah. So, but it has Roger Daltrey on the cover. And these, you know, there's something going on in the background or there's a nut third head or there's something mm. like that that actually has something to do with what's in the specific book. They all have Sam and Al, of course, but uh, there's something else going on that's that's uh, like the good Captain Kirk and bad Captain Kirk one. There's two Sam heads on the on the front of it. That's John yeah. Peels. I, no, John Peels is Independence. Okay, but, yeah, that was, you know, uh, which that was the yellow one. I knew yeah. you were talking about uh, CJ's, I think, when he looks into twins. That's right, yeah. 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 Yeah, when he um, leaps into twins. So, yeah, thank you for for actually opening up that that can of worms. I want to <laughs> know when when you do commission covers that are painted like this. Number one, how long of a lead time do you need for something like that for an artist? Well, that's a question. Just in, these go much more quickly than a regular publication of a, of a book in normal, because in normal the run up between. The beginning and the final was about a year, but these go much more quickly. I'd say a couple months. couple of months. And yeah. when you get the artist and you contract with the artist, how do you express to them what you want on the cover? Do you give them a, a synopsis of the story and let them run with it or say, I specifically want this or these elements highlighted? There's an art director. So we, the editor, by and large, don't communicate with the artist at all. We communicate with the art director. And in the case of a tie-in thing, you give them visual references. And uh, Bacala and, and Stockwell, or Bacala and Stockwell, so they always look alike. But the art director has a, a summary of the plot. And there's an art cover conference. And you say to the art director, you make suggestions of what else might you know, be on the cover, in addition, in this case, to Sam and Al. 
And then the art director communicates with the artist. And when the artist sends him sketches, they're shown to the editor. And in this case, even though they were not paying all that much attention, we did send stuff out for approval, but I don't think they ever, I have no memory of them ever asking for a cover to be changed. Yeah, I think that there was one small thing on my cover. Um, Again, I have it here in front of me, but uh, there's uh, this shot of Sam. I have the original artwork. You you sent me a print when the book was published and the cover yeah. had been approved. And it's the full picture, not cropped for the cover. I'm going to get to that for, in a second. But Sam's hair is more wild on the original. And you said, yeah, I'm sending you this. But uh, just when they do the cover, they're going to fix his hair. <laughs> you know, so it's like it seemed like little things like that in my personal experience uh, dealing with you in the novel series. One thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, we're talking about the evolution of the series. When the series started, um, if you look at the novel and uh, the first dozen Mm. books, I guess, it was a full cover, kind of like you'd see on like an old Star Trek novel or sort of that template. Uh And then as the um, novels evolved, you went to sort of a much different layout. Yeah, that's just packaging. They thought, you know, maybe to uh, concern that they were all starting to look too much alike kind of thing. So that's a design thing. I mean, I, that was the main reason because every one of the covers has Sam and Al on it uh, mm-hmm. and maybe something else. They were concerned that it was all, and, and the quantum leap, the authorized quantum leap logo. They were concerned that it, they were all starting to look a little bit too much like, so they changed up the packaging, you know, cause they can't change the typeface because it's the official quantum leap logo. This happens all the time in uh, series books. Basically people will refresh the packages, how it's referred. Right. So as the uh, the series went on, I guess, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but can can you give me an example of when the series kicked off, I guess the sales were high, but then I, I'm, I'm assuming they had to have just slacked off after a while. Did you have an idea when the beginning of the end would be or... What was what was sort of the, the the turning point where you knew, okay, we did our best work, but now the series is probably going to come to an end? I don't remember what the actual numbers were. It would have had entire, I mean, it would have had to do with the numbers. And the numbers clearly, print numbers and sales numbers, the numbers clearly must have started going down. That's a gradual thing. And I probably, at the point that I did the last contract, which was probably for three books because they all tend to be three books. I mm-hmm. probably had knew it was going to be the last. It may have been that you. I don't think it, I don't think Universal asked for more money or anything. I think it was just it. It was diminishing returns. I think in, in the the standard um, business speak, but it lasted. Quite, I'm not good at years anymore. It lasted a couple of years or more longer than the actual series. So. We were very pleased about that. I mean, the only program that's gone on forever and ever and ever, of course, is Trek. I mean, Trek has gone through bunches of iterations and things like that. But for a a failed, basically, really, television series to generate a, a novel program of, nine, well, 18 novels and a guide is pretty remarkable, in fact. Yeah. And um, personally, I want to thank you for all the hard work that you put into it because it enabled me to fulfill a lifelong dream. And it's funny, it's, it, it's like you said that um, a lot of the, the authors were kind of one and done because they wanted to write a Quantum Leap book. Mm-hmm. And I found that as I kept writing after doing Foreknowledge, it just wasn't something that was satisfying me like writing Foreknowledge mm-hmm. did. 
you know? So um, I thank you for creating like a unique circumstance for the fans to express themselves in a professional medium. And also thank you for, you know, expanding the universe in the way that you did, because it just gives us more to talk about and more to enjoy from a series that I don't think the series ended before it should have, but I'm glad that we have, uh, what we have with the TV. And I'm glad that we have the books to expand on that and to give us even more to enjoy about Quantum Leap. So thank you personally for that. I've often wondered if Bellisario read them because I think that there are ways in which the books, many of the books are much more faithful to his concept of what the series was about than the last season. I mean, his, his bone of contention with Universal was the change. A lot of it was the changes they wanted to make. That's the evil lip leaper. That's the famous story of they wanted Sam to have a teenage leap companion. I mean, they wanted him to do things that he just did not want to do and wouldn't do. He did do the evil leaper thing, but uh, he knew that it was going to be the last season. So the Lee Harvey Oswald episode was again done doing something rather than paying to go through to a therapist because, (laughs) well, you probably know, I mean, you you do the podcast, the guy that Lee talks to when he's in the army and about a gun or something was Don Belisario. He met Harvey Oswald. So he wrote some things, I think, that he was starting to do his own fanfic, I think is the way to do it, (laughs) uh, in the last season. I mean, he did the the evil leaper because they wanted that. But some of that, you know, some of the Elvis stuff and all that was stuff that Don just wanted to do. And he knew that it was going to be the swan song. So he was and they weren't objecting to it because Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, why would Universal and NBC object to that? But. It wasn't his intent at the beginning. I mean, the kiss with history things was as far as he wanted to go when it came to having, quote unquote, famous people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he just went full tilt in that direction in the last episode. But I think that the novels in a lot of ways were more true to his original vision. What the novels were doing were more true to his original vision than some of the last season episodes. And I've often wondered, I don't think I ever asked Deborah. I should have asked Deborah if he had ever read any of them. She had. She had. So. Yeah. Deborah indicated to me that she had when I had met her. I had met her a couple of times. And um, the only time I met Don, I came with my book for him to sign it. And he looked at it. He looked down at the cover and he looked at my name tag and he said, oh, that's you. And I said, yep. I said, could you sign this, please? <laughs> you know, the beginning and the end. But he didn't, hadn't indicated that he had read any of them or there was no further conversation about my book or the books in general. Yeah, yeah. He obviously yeah. he knew they existed, even though he had left. But I was just curious about that. I, I know in the Highlander world that the actors have read some of the books, and but of course there aren't nineteen of them. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, so now uh, yeah, you're jogging my memory because I remember when I think the last time that we saw each other in person, you had floated the idea, or at least maybe this was just something that you were toying with, but you said that you would have loved to have done an anthology with post-mirror image stories. Is that something that you ever considered seriously? Well, it wouldn't have been possible. And that may have been, I don't remember when it actually was, Chris, but I did do a project with Highlander called An Evening at Joe's. And it was the actors writing their characters 
And actually, many people like the principal director and the production designer and the sword master and things like that. And that may have been jogged in my head some notion of that. Yeah, I think that would have been an excellent idea, but I'm not sure the licensing would have been available at all. And that really is fanfic, but authorized fanfic can be very good fanfic. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any specific types of stories in mind for that? Or were you just casting a wide net? Um, I'm one of the people who is not sure exactly what was going on in Mirror Image. So I'm not even sure what a post-Mirror Image world would look like. It seemed to me that to be saying that Sam could choose where he would go and when. That was the gist of it. Yep. So then you get into having to get into Sam Beckett's head. Would he go the way of trying to not kill Hitler? Sam wouldn't kill Hitler, but going back and making sure that Hitler became a successful painter uh, or that Fidel Castro got his contract as a, you know, as a baseball player, (laughs) would that have been where his mind would have taken him? Or would he have gone for the little folk, the small, changing the, the lives of individual people not changing the world, I guess, is the way that would go. And I'm not sure I I would know of an answer to that. But if you're doing an anthology, what you have is a bunch of authors, each of whom has their own answer to that question. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what Belisario's answer would have been, actually. So. Yeah, it's yeah, it's something that we've discussed a lot on the podcast, and uh, you you just can't help because it seemed that Mirror Image completely changed the parameters of the series. Absolutely, and, and again, yeah. then it becomes where does Sam want to go? Mm-hmm. And apparently, now he can leap outside his own lifetime, based on some of the unproduced scripts or some of the unproduced material that was in the finale script originally so yeah it's interesting question i was just curious about your take on it i think that a novel like that would have been pretty awesome yeah or an anthology different different people's getting into the head i I actually found the leaping on the timeline back on the timeline interesting because then you open up or forward in the beckett's fine or genealogy which i gather was part of what might it might have turned into real science fiction if you know what i mean yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that would have been interesting to yeah, see. It would have been interesting. But, it would have been interesting. But to yeah. me, the, the essence of Quantum Leap is stuff like, oh, the first one time he becomes a woman, <laughs> you know, the commenting on, on the issues in a way and in, in a very pointed and, and successful way, I think, not keeping Hitler from starting World War II and things like that. Hmm. Well, I mean, on the whole, I think that the novels embraced a very broad range of um, types of leaps, types of ideas, and explored a lot of interesting ground that the show couldn't. And I want to thank you for that as well. Well, Ginger, thank you very much for enlightening us, for giving us this fascinating history of the novel series, and for spending the time with us today. You're most welcome. It was a pleasure. Guys, how terrific was that? It was so great to touch base with Ginger again after all these years. Yeah, it was great to hear oh, you talking to her again. Same old Ginger. I love her. I mean, she was <laughs> she was always so nice. She's so gracious. She was um, really like steel trap, like encyclopedic memory of just about everything <laughs> regarding the book series and what they wanted to accomplish. And I'm so glad that we're able to get 
this insight because it does provide a much broader frame of reference as we read the books going forward. And um, I hope that the listeners get the benefit out of it that I got when I was talking to her. So again, thank you very much, Ginger. You were so gracious with your time. And we really appreciate you appearing on the show. Thanks, Ginger. Thank you. Well, all that leads us to a bit of feedback. And uh, this one's a tiny bit longer than usual, guys. But if you don't mind, I think it's very apropos for this first book review episode of the podcast. We got an email from a woman named Nancy Henderson. Nancy used to run a con here on the East Coast called East Leap, and it was because of Nancy letting me into East Leap after the registration had filled up that I got to meet Ginger Buchanan for the first time. So, and, you know, talk to her about my book. So it's, it's, it's sort of all relevant. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I know that we haven't mentioned it yet, but this is the first show that um, we three have recorded for the main feed since Dean's passing. So uh, it was Dean's passing that actually got Nancy to discover the show and reconnect with me. So I'm going to start with a letter that she wrote. Um, she writes, Hi, Christopher. I just stumbled onto your podcast. Hearing of Dean's death sent me reeling, and I wanted the comfort of the QL fandom. When I heard your name and voice, I suddenly remembered that we met before. It took a moment, but then I realized that you attended the second East Leap. In fact, you called me and explained how you had to get in, even though we were fully booked, that it would be your opportunity to pitch your book idea. As the creator and leader of East Leap, I bent a few rules and the rest, as they say, is history. Ooh, that's crazy. <laughs> I loved your book. I never got the chance to tell you that, nor to thank Aww. you for putting me in the acknowledgements. That was a real thrill. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that you are still involved with the fandom. I look forward to listening to many more of your podcasts. Also, the videos on your site are amazing. I loved watching the unaired ending of the final episode. I never even knew the new Beth scene was shot. Great save. I've spoken with Scott and Dean on several occasions. I attended and taped Dean's star ceremony and the first Quantum Leap convention in LA, but I didn't really meet Dean until I flew out to California to attend a luncheon they had in honour of Dean and Joy's environmental efforts. A pushy friend dragged me over to him and said, This is Nancy Henderson. She flew all the way from Philadelphia to meet you, and she's known as the Dean Fiend. <laughs> That's better than alcoholic, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Nancy continues, I was so embarrassed, but Dean got an impish grin on his face and said, So are you the Dean Fiend? All I could come up with was, So I've been told. In actuality, I created the name for an online chat room. We talked about the environment, but the rest was really a blur. I got to talk to Dean a few more times. At the third LA Con, which was put on by fans, I was one of several videographers. My job was to film Dean all day. I was elated. Dean and Scott were invited to the second East Leap. Dean called me back himself and said he couldn't attend because he was shooting something in Australia, but that he would send along some items for a charity auction. I had been out when he called, so you can imagine my thrill and shock when I heard his message on my answering machine. Don't get me wrong, I love Scott too, but Dean was just my cup of tea. So if you ever need any info on Dean's career, look me up. I studied it for several years. I had a list of his movie roles that was over 150, and that was in the 1990s. <laughs> anyway, thanks for your podcast and all you do to keep QL vital. Nancy. That's a terrific That's great. letter. Oh, my yeah. God. This is amazing, all the stuff that she got to do. Can you believe this, this whole show? I'm sorry. This is like Chris-centric old home week. I'm just hearing from people Aww. that I haven't heard from until Aww. I get to speak to Ginger. I get to hear from Nancy again. I wrote her back. She wrote me back. We've been corresponding since I got this letter. It's just, it's so nice to be back in this space. And Nancy, thank you so much. I, I feel like I, I wanted to include this letter, not because she loves my book, because, you know, who wouldn't? But 
<laughs> it, it was almost like the perfect synergy because we are in sort of a dark place now in Quantum Leap fandom with Dean's passing. And, you know, she does touch upon that, but it's so wonderful to hear how great he was in person and how she got to interact mm -hmm. with him. And thank you, Nancy, for allowing us to share this on air with the listeners. I'm sure that everybody is happy to hear your positive experiences with Dean Stockwell. I know that he will be missed. I know that the fan community is still reeling a little bit, but um, it's stories like these that I think will bring us to, you know, some acceptance of our loss and bring us towards healing and coming together as the fan community that we are really is the way to go about that. And I think she's facilitated that nicely. So thank you, Nancy, mm. so much. It really was what we needed to hear at this time. And it just so happened to coincide with the first book show perfectly. So yeah. I'm really glad that we got to hear from the Dean fiend. I just want to say. <laughs> I do like that. I think I'll use that um, instead of alcoholics from now on. Or maybe interchangeably, I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> if you'd like to be like your fellow Dean fiend, Nancy Henderson, and get in touch with us, there are many ways to do so. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Quantum Leap Pod, or you can go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. Just remember that we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, tell us what's next. Well, it looks like we're going back to the very beginning, back where it all started. We're going to Genesis. Control! Yeah, what's happening, Gushy? He's leaping! can't leap, we're not ready. Tell Sam that! Put him on! I can't, he's in the accelerator! Ah! Ah! What do I do? Nothing! Any interference could kill her! I'll be there in two minutes! We did it. Did what? I can't remember. I can't remember anything. Who am I? Where am I? Up with the coffee, Anton. Oh, boy. Very exciting. Right? It's going to be good. Yeah, looking forward to talking about that. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, um, just in way of uh, some broader context, I found a TV channel on my streaming service. It's just a free channel that plays Quantum Leap basically all day long. And I've been seeing <laughs> so many first season episodes, like complete versions of first season episodes that I've never seen outside of syndication. So it's really exciting for me to go back to Genesis and maybe see it uncut mm. the way it was meant to be seen the first time. I might actually get a Blu-ray player in the Blu-rays. <gasps> this is how excited I am to be going back to the beginning of the series. Hot dog. All right. So, um, Matt, I'm going to uh, rely on your guidance to tell me what kind of Blu-ray player to get because you're a techie guy, but you know, we can do that off mic. Anyway, I am, yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling so much more committed to Quantum Leap now that the show proper is over. Than I have since we began the podcast. I'm so excited to be going back and talking about the books and all this stuff. So until then, I've been Christopher D. Philippus. I've been Allison Pregler. 
And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden and Charles Allen Gossard are the producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit Baronspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Baron Space production.